0: Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.
1: Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. This is our review of The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, and Scatman Crothers. Co-written, produced, and directed by Stanley Kubrick based on the hit Stephen King novel, released in 1980 on a budget of $19 million, grossed over $44 million at... The box office. So we're continuing our reviews with the films of Stanley Kubrick. And as I stated on previous shows, this is now my third time reviewing this for a podcast. (laughs) Beyond that, though, I've seen this movie countless times, Kurt. Like this one goes all the way back to when I was really too young to see it. My dad loved this movie. Let me watch it. All of it. And I mean all of it. And of course, it freaked me completely out. One of the few films that I can actually say I was legitimately scared by as a kid. Um, so I didn't watch it for a few years. But then as I got a little bit older, Dad and I had a ritual at in December... To watch this because of cold weather and such, even though we never got anything (laughs) near this kind of snow, we just dreamed of it. But it was kind of a winter movie. Like some people watch, you know, a Christmas Carol, which we do that, or, you know, (laughs) I don't know, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. My dad and I for years watched The Shining, which I know is kinda twisted, but it's just one of our things and you know, years later I even read the book and when the TV miniseries came out again in ninety seven, I taped that on VHS and Sadly taped over it many years later uh with probably some WCW Nitro or something because that's way more entertaining than that <laughs> miniseries. But I mean, I've seen The Shining uh, uh, so many times. And uh the truth is, though, th- this had been the first time I had watched it again since the last podcast I did of it, which was like in 2015 or something. Hmm. So it was good to go back <clears throat> and revisit an old friend here. Yeah,
0: uh, absolutely. And uh, we... You know, we finally come to it. The Shining is the first Kubrick movie I ever saw. That's probably the case with a lot of people, uh, yeah. and this is the one I've I've seen the most. I first saw this movie in probably a, a made you know safe for television version, probably before, somewhere between eight and ten. And looking back, I was th- as I was thinking about that, I was like, I'm not sure w- what the purpose of a made for tv version of this movie would be because I don't know what you'd be allowed to show back, uh, even back you know back then on on cable. Yeah. And but not long after that my parents who were big fans of this movie they showed they got the whole family together and we watched the DVD. Now uh, before this uh the first bit I'd ever seen of this movie was on the Simpsons during that Halloween episode segment called The Shining and I'm a big Simpsons buff <laughs> at least uh during that first decade of the show and in my opinion the 6 minutes they did parodying The Shining is the best 6 minutes they ever did. I didn't know it yet. But it was and is a pitch perfect parody uh, of of Kubrick. Like, clearly, like those guys, they're not just making fun of it. Like, they're fans showing how cool it is while at the same time making fun of stuff like, huh, usually the blood gets off on the second floor. But anyway, this, uh, I saw this movie when I was too young for it, probably, definitely, and uh, it scared the hell out of me. But uh, I loved it, and it's become a favorite, uh, you know, ever since, and a family favorite too, like movies like Fargo or Goodfellas. And this seems to be the most accessible movie Kubrick has made. Uh, and probably the most watched. Like, this is the only Kubrick movie out there that possibly that my mom has seen at all. And, you know, she's uh, like seen this multiple times. Huge fan. And audience in 1980 apparently weren't as receptive. Uh, it still holds a middling Metacritic rating, just probably based on reviews from back then. And i probably attribute that to the book was huge back then, and this movie differs from that a lot. And the big thing is, nobody had ever seen, never mind horror movie, no one had ever seen a movie like this, ever. But now it's regarded as one of, if not depending on who you ask, one of the best horror movie ever made.
1: Oh, yeah. I I think it's funny that this one has become such a beloved film, and it made a lot of money. I mean, at the, fact, at the time, Kubrick needed to hit, and he knew it. Oh, Barry yeah. Lyndon did not work. Clockwork Orange had been... Critically acclaimed, and it made a little money, but it was not a massive hit. The thing was, he was still reeling from the fact that he did 2001. That was this massive event, and he could do anything he wanted, and what he wanted to do was Napoleon, and he couldn't do that, and it haunted him for the rest of his life. And so he was looking for something to do and turning pulp horror novels into movies seemed to be something people would throw money at him to do. So he apparently locked himself in his office and his secretary talks about how she would hear thuds on the wall of when he would start reading books, wouldn't be into it. Chuck it. And then she didn't hear a noise for a while, went and checked on him and he was like buried into the shiny. And having read that book a couple of times, I can understand that. And I should say from the outset, the book is a completely different experience than this. Like, this is very much like what Kubrick does when he adapts things, but unlike maybe A Clockwork Orange, where it's pretty much page to screen for the most part, this one is, well, here's sort of the spirit of what you're going for, but I have a much better idea, Stephen. <laughs> and so, and, you know, King has gone back and forth through the years. I think his real feeling about it is that he absolutely hated this, and didn't want to be a part of it, and, and pissed off that his script got rejected, and all that kind of stuff, and and that's why we got that TV miniseries, which is much more <laughs> akin to what the book's supposed to be. And outside of one casting choice, is completely and totally horrible. Um and, and doesn't work at all. Whereas this movie is, you know, at this point we're recording this, Kurt. It's it's thirty nine years old. It's almost forty years old, and it still holds up. Like you don't even think about the tech in it or anything like that. Where you watch that ninety seven one, and it's like, ooh, hedge animals, bad CGI, bad, 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 bad. Oh yeah, and I I, I
0: tend not to take much stock in what uh, Stephen King has to say about his own movies. I mean, uh, he's always said he hates The Shining, but you know, this is the guy who thought Maximum Overdrive was. Uh, Great. And to the point of getting the trailer. Yeah. Uh, if, you haven't, if anyone hasn't seen the trailer, look up the trailer for Maximum Morbid Drive. It's the only time, a director's, well, not the only time, but he thinks he's Hitchcock or something where he can make a trailer where he's looking right in the camera. Which Hitchcock's great at, but Stephen King's got the cross eyes going. The,
1: the difference is Hitchcock was never loked out on cocaine and cough syrup when he was shooting a movie, and Stephen King yeah. definitely was shooting Maximum Overdrive like that. You can like listen to the archives, folks. Go to the film of Archives, search Maximum Overdrive. Nick and I reviewed that way back when, <laughs> and when the first time I reviewed the shooting, same series when we were doing Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, yeah, King, King is definitely not the best source of his own stuff. I think it's funny that you mentioned that this one didn't have a lot of critical acclaim. This was in a Razzie-nominated performance by Shelley Duvall oh, yeah. and Razzie-nominated director, though the Screen Actors Guild nominated him for Best Director, so go figure. Oh, yeah.
0: It's, uh, I mean, like, I think pretty much everyone, I think this is like a pretty universal uh, movie across the board. I can't, I've never heard anyone say they don't like this movie. Um, But I think, again, like I said, I think it's just a thing of, in 1980, I mean, I can't think of any, I haven't seen every horror movie ever made, but I can't think of any horror movie like this, where it is so, I mean, it's a two and a half hour movie, and lots of it is very slow, a lot of it, it completely, you know, is not a horror movie, it turns into some kind of a weird I don't know, time travel, comedy, whatever you want to call it, where all of a sudden it's the 1920s and might be, I can totally see audiences being, like, they're just not used to it. It's, you know, it's like, it's probably similar to, you know, like uh, movies I talked about in the last pod about, you know, movies like Blade Runner. No one, like, no one had ever seen a movie like that or some, you know, maybe totally different kind of movie, but like the Thin Red Line. And you can say, you can say that about every Kubrick movie. You look up the reviews, almost, almost all of them, except for Dr. Strangelove, uh, all the movies made after Dr. Strangelove were all very, very lukewarm because critics just didn't know what to make of it. Um, and it's, it's like that saying I hear, you know, pioneers are the ones that leave with arrows in their back. And I, right. you can say that about, about Kubrick because, you know, he was crea- he was creating the form. Like he Apparently he told Spielberg, like, I want to change the form. He was going out of his way to change the form. And, of course, to do that, it involves confusing a lot of people uh, initially. But now everyone looks at those movies and says he's a genius. But that Razzie nomination always makes me – Chuckle every time I see that. Cause I,
1: yeah, <laughs> I wonder sometimes. I like, that's just not people having fun with him. Because of of all of Kubrick's things, for those who were close to him, apparently he had a real sense of humor and was real warm. Like as much of a of a jerk as, and, or maybe a taskmaster as he could be to his actors and things like that. And you know, as as a, much of a perfectionist he was, and putting it something together. Uh, apparently, if you were close to him. Yeah, you know, you, you, the guy was a real funny guy and like you got a good laugh out of him, but he was also a genius and he didn't know he was a genius. So he's the best kind because he's just trying to reinvent things, but he's pushing himself forward and he's inventing camera lenses. He's doing stuff and we'll talk about a lot of that with this again. John Alcott's doing cinematography here and it's. Friggin' gorgeous! It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I have missed an opportunity, Kurtz, a few years ago. My wife's cousins worked at movie theaters for years while they were in high school and college and stuff, and they would like close out theaters late at night for screenings and stuff. And I was one day late getting into town. They were screening The Shining on like a big screen. I miss yeah. seeing it on a big screen someday. I know they're coming out with another 4K restoration. I'm hoping it makes another theatrical run. I want to see this on a big screen at some point because I've seen it on my televisions and all that kind of stuff, but I want to see this in a theater and experience that with a crowd of people because I can only imagine what it was like uh, at the time.
0: Whenever I think of horror movies, I tend to think of something a little bit more claustrophobic, like, you know, like the year yeah. before this movie comes out is Alien, all about claustrophobia and smoke and flashing lights, whereas this movie is very, uh, very open, very, like, this, so many of the shots are these huge, epic, wide shots, like the complete opposite of, 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 uh, of claustrophobia.
1: And let's talk about what was happening at this moment. Uh, This movie came out two years after Halloween came out the same year as Friday, the 13th came out. The slasher craze was starting, but it should be noted. This movie was shooting while Halloween was coming out and building its buzz. So nobody, I mean, the book came out in 77. They shot this thing for an entire year in 78. Kubrick spent most of 79 putting it together. Tom Cruise joked years later that in between breaks on eyes wide shut, Stanley would go into his trailer and start recutting the shining so that he was (laughs) never done with it. I mean this was the thing that he sort of uh, abandoned. I remember hearing uh, a a record producer once say that great albums are never finished. They're abandoned at some right. point by, by the band is because it used to you have to get it to the public. And this one was like right up until the day of, and he was still recutting it and throwing it back in theaters. This was back in a time too, when movies would stay in theaters for a very long time. We didn't have home video yet. And so it lent it to itself, but this was a real change of pace from everything else that was going on in the horror genre. And if somebody's a big horror person or, or horror buff, I, Realize how different this is to do a almost '50s and '60s style haunted house movie in the midst of the slash and cut em up craze.
0: I don't know if this is the right word, but like this movie, this is Kubrick uh, selling out. Not, I don't mean that in a bad way, but this is him like trying to cash in of like, oh, horror yeah. movies are big. So like this this book is big. I'll, you know, I'll make a movie out of that. Um, but in you know in even even with him quote unquote you know selling out or you know trying to make a movie a populist movie. His pop, his version of a populist movie is a movie with the most amount of blood you've ever seen in one shot in the history of film,
1: yeah. coming <laughs> rushing out of an elevator and splashing across the walls. It, the it's also one of those movies that is full of so many things that people have picked it apart forever. Have you ever seen the documentary Room 237? It ran around Hulu and Netflix for a long time. Not yet. You need to check it at least once. Uh, it is definitely like going deep into the rabbit hole. All right. With mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. And some of it, like I can get caught up in them. like, holy cow. And I'll start thinking about it. I'm like, wait a minute. This guy shot this for a year. They were making this up as they went along. They said something that should be noted, like this one in particular, they were writing the script day at a time. Nicholson just got to the point where people would hand him the script and he would just throw it in the trash and be like, whatever, I'll just have to learn it five minutes before I yeah. shoot it anyway. Cause Stanley and Diane Johnson, his his co-writer on this one, who was like a New York Times columnist and stuff like that, really just continually wrote and wrote and wrote and rewrote and rewrote and, rewrote, and they built these elaborate it says only Stanley Kubrick would shoot the outside of a hotel, then go rebuild the inside of it because it didn't work the way he wanted to. <laughs> (laughs) But there's all this stuff where people are like, the layouts of the rooms make no sense. I'm like, yeah, no shit. He had to make it up as he was going along. Like, he invented something that didn't exist, you know, and it didn't even exist in the book. And that's what's (laughs) the amazing part is that he took – and if you've read the book, King does a great job of describing the scenery of this hotel and what it looks like. I mean, he even stayed in what the the Stanley Hotel that inspired what the overlook was in the book. And you get this great – rich language from King on what it looks like. And Kubrick took that and just took it to the next degree. And the fact that he did all of that. And again, it's such a gonzo production. <laughs> you know, it's just, we're just making it up as we go along. I'm torturing the actors because I want them to seem distressed. He gets Shelly Duvall. So mad, her hair starts falling out at some point. I mean, again, the woman, <laughs> a poor nervous breakdown. I'm like, man, what is, what a nut! You know, <laughs> I mean, to huh. dig in on everything that the guy digs in on, and this movie's about craziness, and then for years later again to come back to T three seven, people to take all of it and just extrapolate it into this these wild theories about what this means and what it doesn't mean, and I can only imagine like Kubrick's estate sort of chuckles at some of that, and he might even find some of it amusing, and he even said like he he did, he made it to be. A little open-ended, but in his mind, there's a, there's a straight through line to what he was trying to tell here. And if people want to read beyond that, well, that's up to them. Oh, yeah. And, and
0: to go back on what you're saying about him making up as, as you go, it's like there's literal proof of that. And that's in this on the DVD or Blu-ray. Uh, I think it's his daughter, Vivian Kubrick, shot this 20-minute documentary making of the movie. It is the one of the very few or maybe the only inside look – Of Kubrick, Uh, there's actually some footage of of like this for Full Metal Jacket, but a lot of it apparently was is lost. But it's this amazing documentary of up close and personal with Jack Nicholson, who, who, despite how crazy he is, this movie couldn't possibly seem more easygoing, have a great sense of humor, Um, and, and there's a bit where Shelley Duvall is having a nervous breakdown. She's 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 literally in the corner lying down uh with with uh either maybe her assistant like who's like you know rubbing her hands and in the same shot she the, we move off of her and Kubrick he's not talking to her at all he is typing up versions of of uh, of the script so he totally he was right. m- making it up
1: <laughs> yeah i mean he, he was doing this as he went along because as he got into it he cast Nicholson of this cuz he'd been on the work for Nichol- with Nicholson for a long time Nicholson was going to do Napoleon with him and that didn't work out Nicholson went away did some other stuff and you have to like put out of your mind what you think of Jack Nicholson now All right, matter of fact I think a lot of what we think of Jack Nicholson now kind of started with this performance and then he's just repeated it for 40 years almost now but Nicholson at this point was somebody who was a really acclaimed actor and for good reason the man is an incredible performer and he's he's known to be very fun and very laid back and even he was getting stressed out by all of this and he he was living with Angelica Houston at the time in London and her sister. And they would talk about like the grueling days he would put in on the set and then would come back and just be completely and totally wiped out. He's like, I don't even know what we're doing anymore. He's like, I don't know what the story is. And that's the amazing thing is that really you're three central performers here that he was able to assemble out of all of those hours of film, the performances he got out of them. And I got to say now Danny Lloyd is probably the greatest horror actor kid in a horror movie maybe of all time. I mean, a lot of times you know they don't they don't tell kids like they're in horror movies and what they're doing or whatever and apparently he had no idea what he was in. The Kubert kept him totally in the dark. He just went off of it and they went through some sort of wicked elaborate way to find him. It's like looking for Anakin Skywalker in Fan of minutes for George Lucas, except with much better results, uh, no offense, Jake Lloyd, but <laughs> Danny Lloyd, no no relation by the way, Danny Lloyd gives such a cool performance as this creepy telepathic kid, right, and the the, the fact that it all came together is an amazing bit of. Editing by Ray Lovejoy and Kubrick and his team to put this together. But it was also at a time when you could take a year and a half to put something like this together and people weren't beating down your door. Disney wasn't like trying to murder you for to get yeah. the print, you know, and put it in put it in theaters. So we don't live in that time anymore. I don't think people get that kind of time to do stuff like this. And maybe we don't have those filmmakers. Before we get into it though, we gotta talk about one more thing that's more modern. Spielberg it was really close with Kubrick, and he decided to make part of Ready Player One a re- Play of a pretty significant scene in The Shining, and that's very different from the Ready Player One book. And I remember seeing that in theaters, and I, I people hated that. I loved it. I thought it was a really fun, sort of uh, in-world game experience. If you could relive part of The Shining, what that would look like, and the way they put it together, it looked amazing. And it was—it's the only bit of The Shining I've ever seen on a big screen again. So it really you wet know, the appetite to see it again. But I thought that was cool. What did you think of it? Oh yeah, I was
0: a big, you know, I I'm a big fan of Ready player one and I was all I was all set for that movie for all these you know, all these various science fiction things that were going to meld in, you know, Iron Giant, Back to the Future, and, you know, King Kong type stuff. And then out of nowhere they say we're going to go into the movie The Shining and like, wait, what? And then and then mm-hmm. and then I think it was what Simon Pegg's character says, he says everyone's you know, everyone be careful, you know, if, uh, he says, "I hope you have the belly for it." And it's like, you know, a line Grady says in The Shining. And then the music starts. And then, yeah, we go into that scene. And I was, I was, not to oversell it too much, but that was like a magical moment for me. Cause I wasn't, I was not thinking we're gonna get a, you know, stand that Steven Spielberg was gonna do the best Kubrick tribute, uh, anyone's done, you know, in a decade since, you know, There Will Be Blood. Cause I, I, st- and watching that scene, I still can't tell if he recreated that set or if it's, if it's CGI or if he's putting CGI characters in that scene, but it was like it was so well done, and I just had the mm. biggest smile on my face during that entire scene. My only regret is like, is they didn't somehow work in uh, Jack Nicholson and have someone say, you know, uh, here is Johnny. That confused me. But other than that, mm. that was you know, that was that was such a joy because I- Spielberg is one of you know Kubrick's best pals. So Spielberg, you know, he he was he's the best guy to do something like that. You know, he was having a good time with that part.
1: Being pals with, with Kubrick, he was able to get it, but I'm glad you enjoyed that too. Maybe one day we'll get around to talking about that movie because I think it is worth another look, but th- th- it was worth talking about here because that maybe for our younger listeners or younger audience, that may be what you know of The Shining, you know, that here's Johnny line and then you mm-hmm. saw it you know, it or, or put it together on the Simpsons or and then in ready player one, you may not know it for itself. So it is a, an older film at, like all of these have been up to this point, but this one, one is, I, I do feel like everybody's seen a piece of it or has some connection to it. And i am always been amazed at like, how can you summarize such a thing? Right. And I even went back and listened to my old plot summary and Nick and I joked about how long it was because we've really shortened them down at your suggestion, by the way, Kurt, you, people don't know. Kurt's the reason we'd shortened the plot summary years ago on this show because <laughs> That were going on way long. And then I want you all to know, I wrote like a two-paragraph summary, and Kurt was like, no, 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 I got this, and like turned in this treatise that he's about to go through here. So, so I just want you all to know that the guy who said do shorter plot summaries is about to drop a long <laughs> one on you. So, but that's okay. Well, Kurt, I think it is time to give a plot summary. So tell people about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Well...
0: Unemployed writer and recovering alcoholic Jack Torrance takes a job as a caretaker for the Overlook Hotel in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado during the winter season and brings along his wife Wendy and son Danny. Before going to the Overlook, Danny has visions of blood and death that he discusses with Tony, the boy who lives in his mouth. Uh, Danny Torrance at the hotel meets Dick Halloran, who's the head chef of the Overlook Hotel, who tells Danny he has an ability that he calls shining, which is ESP or telepathy. And he tells Danny in so many words that the Overlook Hotel is haunted. And a month into the winter season, as the snow starts to fall and Jack starts working on his new uh, novel, Danny begins to see ghosts in the halls of the Overlook and is attacked by one of them in room 237. Jack has visions of his own, visions of, of death and a horrible dream that he explains to Wendy that he dreamt of killing her and Danny. Uh, at which point Danny comes in with bruises, that and Wendy accuses Jack of, of hurting him. Puzzled by this, Jack heads to the overlooked bar to gather his thoughts, where he meets Lloyd, the bartender, who listens to Jack's tales of woe and pours him a drink. Wendy comes over in hysterics, saying Danny claims he was strangled by an old woman in the hotel in room 237. Jack investigates, and sure enough, he finds an old woman, and but he keeps that to himself and returns to the bar. Uh, This time he runs into a waiter claiming to be Delbert Grady, who was a, a previous caretaker of the Overlook, who murdered his family during his stay. Grady tells Jack that Danny is using his psychic abilities to bring Dick Halloran to the Overlook and that he needs to act fast to correct the situation. Wendy discovers Jack's writings, which is the same sentence repeated across hundreds of pages, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. At which point, Jack comes in and threatens her, but Wendy gets the drop on him, knocking him out with a baseball bat, locking him in the kitchen pantry. Grady then comes to Jack's aid, telling him he'll have to act even faster, releases him from the pantry, and convinces him to butcher his family. Danny, through Tony, warns Wendy of this coming attack by writing red rum on a door in her bedroom and repeating it over and over again, which, when Wendy sees it in a mirror, spells murder. Jack then hacks into Wendy's room with an axe as she gets Danny out the window. Dick Hallman arrives after Danny's psychic call, and Jack takes break from trying to kill his own wife for a minute to kill Halloran, and then goes after Danny, who leads Jack into the Overlook's hedge maze. As Wendy tries to get outside, she begins to see many of these same visions Jack and Danny have been seeing. Danny manages to lose Jack in the maze, and escape with Wendy via the all-terrain vehicle that Halloran came in. We then cut to the next morning where Jack has frozen to death in the maze, uh, and then we cut to the hotel lobby to find a photograph of Jack at a 4th of July party dated July 1921, and we cut to black.
1: And we get the old song in the background to go with it, Mm -hmm. and we're left with a million questions, and two hours and 20-something minutes later... If you're not freaked out of your head and thoroughly confused, then you've slept through the movie. Uh, Because that's the only way you could react to this the first time. I mean, even as a kid, I don't know that I absorbed all of that. It took me several viewings to get it. And I'll be honest with you, Kurt. I don't know that I've totally got it. I've got a lot of questions. And I'm really curious just to have that dialogue with you about who is this? What is this? How did this work? Because that's the beauty of this film for me is that it is one of the very few films I can think of where you walk out of it and you want to have a conversation with someone about what you just saw. And I remember one of the first times I watched this with my wife who had seen it before but didn't really have any memory of it, we watched it one winter together. And the whole time, we're back and forth talking through it. And we you know, sat on the couch as the credits were playing, just having this whole little mini film strip about what was that? And how, what did this mean? And so I, I think that's one of the fun things about this movie. And it, you can look at it from the character's point of view. You can talk about the through line of the story. You can talk about the freaky stuff that goes down. There's just so many ways to attack this one. Oh yeah, that's that's
0: one of the one reasons I think is it's so it's it is maybe maybe Kubrick's most accessible film, even more so than Doctor Strangelove, which is only you know ninety minutes long in a comedy, is that it is it does have a pretty complex plot, a lot of threads to delve into. But I think one reason it's so easy to watch is that at the end of the day, it is an, it is a very very basic story with uh, basically four characters, six if you count the couple ghosts he talks to, and it's just about. And one of the things that makes this movie so kind of primally disturbing is it's about a father trying to kill his own family. Cause there's plenty of slasher yeah. movies where it's some, some guy out of the loony bin, some guy out of jail, some guy possessed. And this is just, you know, this is, this is like a, this is a movie that poses a what if question. It's like, what would you do if your dad came at you with an axe? And I think oh. that is so disturbing. One of the guys involved in the production on the DVD says, you know, horror is not, Real horror is not monsters and you know aliens and and demons it's like horror is across the dinner table. It's like like right. when you can when you can hit, when you can get close to home and touch someone where they live in that way that's how you scare an audience and that's what Kubrick did here.
1: Well I mean and that's exactly what films like Halloween and Alien thrive off of. Oh, yeah. Even Alien being a futuristic movie is really a haunted house movie in space. You know, oh, yeah. what if this thing got in there and you couldn't do anything about it? Halloween is the guy next door murders his sister as a kid, goes away and escapes from the loony bin, and just comes back and starts doing it again. You know, before they get convoluted and all the other things that that series did, and then threw away and you know redid or whatever, Um it was just about a guy, and he was just a normal guy. There wasn't anything really. Matter of fact, it was just a PA walking around with a mask on, and just kind of he kind of walked with a glide and you know, uh Carpenter was like, Yeah, I like you, it was Nick Castle, the director. And <laughs> Castle's like, I just walk. I don't really do it. But it's just all in the, all embodied that, right? And that's the thing here. And what we should say too in the book, the story is very much written from Stephen King trying to deal with his alcoholism at the time. And it was a battle oh, that yeah. he would fight for many decades. But this was one of the first times he really tried to get himself clean after the success of Carrie and a lot of other things. And he had You know, violent outbursts with his family and with his son, Owen, and, you know, he didn't hurt him necessarily, but he thought about it and he got caught up and King's one of those people that if you ever has a thought about something. He's not going to let it go. He's going to write, you know, a billion words about it. And so he just poured it into this idea of like, what about this man that breaks and what if we introduce telepathy and ghosts and all this other stuff going on but the, the book is very much about the family drama sort of falling apart and this movie is about that but it's also about a lot of other stuff too and it's really about this haunting and it's a lot about Danny and at this time watching it I purposely tried to watch this from the Danny character's point of view and just try to filter everything through his eyes what he's experiencing what he's seeing and it gives you a different perspective on it so I encourage somebody to do that if you really like this movie and want to revisit it. So I guess we should start talking about the characters and, and Jack, we've talked about Nicholson and how, you know, an amazing performer he is. I'm going to say something though. I don't even think this is his very best performance that he's ever given. I I can name a few more that I think he's better in, but I don't think he's wrong in this role. The thing about him that I think is different from the Jack Torrance in the book is Jack Torrance in the book is somebody who's trying to get it together, kind of has it together and then just unravels in this book. This Jack or in this movie, this Jack kind of always looks like he's kind of already cracked up, and the glue is just not going to hold very long. Oh yeah, I've heard that. I've heard
0: some people that were trying you know, that are even they like the movie, they really don't like Jack's performance. And um, I can, I mean, I can I can see what they're saying because Jack Nicholson. I can especially see what people people saying that in 1980 because Jack. This is Jack Nicholson really at his peak, one of, if not the greatest actor of all time, coming off of the 70s, where he set a new standard for screen acting, you know, Chinatown, Five Easy Pieces, Cuckoo's Nest, and the last detail, I've heard it said, Nicholson was a great actor, and then after he did the Warren Beatty movie Reds, suddenly he went away, and he came back as Jack Nicholson, where he basically played a certain type for the rest of his career, which may be true, and, you know, varying roles of varying success, but at this point, Nicholson was a lot more uh, flexible. He could maybe he had a lot more uh, he had a lot more range because he never and mm-hmm. the thing is he never he never played a character like this before or since. Even going appropriately over the top as the Joker in Batman, he's still not as manic as he is in this movie. I mean, you throw a dart, you'll hit a moment where he is over the top. A random example when he kills Halloran after he hits him with the axe, he you know he keep, comes up into frame. He's just making this extreme gurning grin face, holding it in front of the camera for a good 15 seconds. It's one of those things where I'm in the movie, but you know, I've I've seen it so many times. I try to think of God, what was going through his head? He's like, I'm just standing here making this face for like a good 15 seconds. And he's never, he's never done that again, but I'm not saying it's a bad performance. I think it's quite the opposite. Uh, it might be the best over the top. Performance I've seen in any movie The next one that comes to mind is similar Is Daniel Day-Lewis In that last 20 minutes of uh, There will be blood uh, I think it takes it takes a great actor to go Over the top and yet still be Incredibly watchable Because one thing about Nicholson is I mean love him or hate him you can't take your I don't think it's a, I don't know I wouldn't say it's a laughable performance But like you can't take you, no matter what You can't take your eyes off of this guy
1: No you can't and th- that's the thing I will say about him Is he instantly brings you in, and every scene he's in, whether he's playing it low and he's laying in bed eating bacon, going, "I love it here. I fell in love with this place." I mean, I've had deja vu at places, but this was crazy, you know. And he's doing that, or later on, he's being creepy with his kid, like, "Would you like to stay here forever?" You know, and then, <laughs> or he's just howling like a crazy person with an axe out in the snow and whatever it might be. Or even better, one of the best scenes, honestly, is when he's with that Grady character in the bathroom, and he's going, "Like, oh, yeah, you killed your family." And you did it with a smile, you know, I mean, he's doing a lot of Joker stuff. And I'm going, holy cow, man. It's just, it's neat to watch an actor with that kind of control. And also when you plug into the fact that like, he probably had to do that 48 times in a row. You know, and then he's going, what, what else can I do possibly? And then to realize what we see is a splice of those 48 performances. It's unbelievable. I mean, if this was a play that had gotten rehearsed and filmed, they'd never be able to recreate it. There's no, if it was a band putting an album together, there's no way you'd ever be able to play it live because you don't know what version of it got in there. You know, it's, it's weird to see, but he puts on a performance. I, I think like for me, like Cuckoo's Nest and Chinatown are, Classic performances. They, they're they hard to ever beat for him. I also thought another one in the 80s. It's kind of an underrated. He won an Oscar for it. He's awesome in terms of endearment, which is a total schlock movie, but he's great in it. Oh, and and a total cheese fest lifetime movie, but he's really good in it. And it got, kind of a role he got to replay several years in his career down the line. Um And he's good. And so you know, he's great in A Few Good Men. There's a menace to that colonel as well. Oh, yeah. You know, and that really comes out on the in the courtroom scene and stuff like that. So Jack plays a lot of the same stuff and you see some of it here, and I think that's fun to watch when you get an actor with such a you know wide career and you see him do stuff. But what's funny is, you know, for years you watch the Showtime Lakers and he's sitting courtside, he makes some of the same shining faces. It was kinda of scary. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. And you say like what I think Nicholson's performance is the poster child for that, that, that thing Kubrick did of doing the same scene, you know, f- uh, 40, 50, 60 uh, times in a row. But that's what he did. I think it's Sidney Pollack, who was in Eyes Wide Shut. He said, you know, it's like the same thing, you know, did like 80 takes of a scene. And Kubrick said he was very, very calm. He's like, he, he it's not like he was uh, screwing up. He's like, you know, you spend all this, these millions of dollars building a set, <laughs> doing the lighting, you do, you know, years to get to this point. And then, you know, you do two takes and you say that's good enough. And it's like, you know, he was all about, like, if we're going to get it, I want to, I want to make sure that I have every single take I could possibly want in that mm-hmm. editing room. It's like, as long as we're here, you know, let's, let's, let's get it done. It's like, uh, it's like, what was it? Like, uh, there's a little bit of Guillermo del Toro shooting Hellboy. And a guy was trying, I guess he seemed like he was rushing. And the guy said, Hey, look, man, like, you do great. If you do great, we're going to be here 12 hours. If you do bad, we're going to be here 12 hours. So just, Relax. Take it easy.
1: Right. Yeah, and we're here no matter what.
0: So. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. And and Nicholson in this movie, although I, as a huge Nicholson fan, and I'm such a huge, I'm a, I'm like like I said, I'm a huge fan of him. Either side of you know this movie, I, I love him in the, you know The Departed, about Schmidt, uh, A Few Good Men, whatever, and uh, and then his early stuff, you know, in Chinatown and you know Five Easy Pieces. This very sort of, you know, act, a kind of act, a kind of intensity that, you know, he almost invented. I'm watching this movie, and I haven't read the book The Shining, but from what I understand, like you said, the character is meant to start off much more relatable and like someone that you would know. Whereas in this movie, it does seem like he's a little cracked from the jump. And I wonder if, if I think Nicholson absolutely... I'll bet you he did play every scene, those first couple takes, as something that would have fit right in in five easy pieces. He probably played it as a completely realistic uh, husband and father, probably you a know, realistic take on a- alcoholism. But he said Kubrick told him, you know, real is good, interesting is better. So mm-hmm. he said there was a pr- – like the editor or someone said the process was – those first couple takes, Nicholson was great. And then you get to take 12, he would start to get tired – Almost like, you know, it's like, you know, he starts going through the motions. And then you start getting it to take 20. He would start to just kind of go crazy, try new things, things that he wouldn't do normally. And then you get to take 60 is where he is saying his line deliveries are so extreme. There's just, there's no question. If you did that in any movie today, you would get laughed at. But within the context of this movie and, you know, the idea that he's possessed by the hotel, Mm-hmm. And that he's going insane. It like it it does work, but it's like it's it's like if if anyone else made this movie and cast Jack Nicholson as Torrance, I don't think we would get a, a performance like this from Jack.
1: Well, no, and I think you you hit it. Is that nobody would keep going and going and going with it? And there's some truth to be said about when you reach a point of exhaustion and then you just push past it. You really get into. Pulling deep from within yourself of your talents and what you can do. I think we've all been there with work, even just on your regular job, you just get to a point where it's like, How can I possibly do one more thing this week? And you're like, Well, but I have to. And then you do it, yeah. and what you you come up with, you're like, Man, that was really good. I should try that again, you know, when I'm not overthinking it too much, you know. And so I think that's kind of neat that Kubrick brought that out of him. He drove him crazy doing it. And we've already talked about what he did to poor Shelley Duvall. Um, and, and that's, there should be some mercy extended to her for this. But I'm gonna be another one of the people that piles on and says, this is the one thing in this movie that has never, ever worked for me. And it's not the way hmm. she looks. She looks like she should look in the time. That's not about looks. It's the performance she gives and the meekness of it. And part of it is I knew the, having come to know the book, and the one thing I will give that miniseries right for Rebecca de Mornay is awesome in that role. And she is exactly what Wendy's supposed to be. Not only a looker, but a strong woman who pushes back and does not take it the way that Wendy does. And Wendy pushes back a little bit in this movie, but she's pretty much a wuss. And that that has always graded on me as to why you would make this character so submissive and so beaten down to this point that... It it grates on the audience's nerves. This grates on my nerves. I like I watch her and I want to grab her and go. Come on, get with it. <laughs> oh yeah,
0: this is this is another big point of contention with this movie. People are fifty fifty on this. Shelley Duvall is a very good actress who before this yes. was in she was in Annie Hall. She and she she won the Cannes Film Festival award for best actress for this Robert Altman movie called Three Women. So Kubrick knew that she was a good actress. And he picked her, I think, because that she is a good actress, and I think it's because you take one look at her, and you know she could not take Jack Nicholson in a fight. Like, if that was Sigourney Weaver, which realistically could have, be, could have happened, if that was Sigourney Weaver, or, random example, a younger, like, say, Catherine Hepburn, you just wouldn't be as afraid – but you take one look at her and it's like, you know, I mean, she plays, she was actually perfect casting for, you know, olive oil in Popeye. She's like, yes. you know, skinny as a rake. So you take one look at her and it's like, you know, when things break bad, you're like, I don't think she, she's like, she's not going to handle it. Although it's weird on paper, I was, when I was watching the movie, I was like, at the things that she does, she actually comes off a lot smarter than Duvall is playing. I'm like she gets the drop on him. She knocks him out and she knows to lock him in the pantry. She gets Danny out the window. Uh, she's got the knife. She's ready to defend herself. But like, so it's a strong character. But the way Duvall, well, the way Kubrick told Goddard to play that is, you know, he he basically broke her. Like I said, you watch the documentary. Like she's literally lying down in between takes, like having a nervous breakdown. And like like Jack Nicholson, she goes way over the top, but in the other direction, playing this, you know, quivering wreck. And the thing about her in this movie, one thing is like, I, that makes it harder for me to trash her performance, that makes it extra disturbing for me actually, is she bears a slight resemblance to my own mom when I saw this movie in, what year would that have been? 1998, let's say. Like, certain resemblance, like her hair, is identical to what my mom's hair looked like in the late '90s. So watching this movie in the '90s, I can't not see my mom in that. So it just it adds to that disturbing primal thing I'm talking about. Like you know, all of a sudden it makes me think, oh, what if Dad did come after us with an axe? Because you know, yeah, but yeah. But so her per, her performance is uh, you know, I guess kind of depends on who you talk to because maybe Kubrick went too far. As I understand it, he uh, as I understand it, he apologized to her after the fact. Saying, I was trying to get something out of you. I'm sorry I went so far. But, uh, you know.
1: I'm sure that made her feel weird about her hair falling out. So, yeah. <laughs> th- 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 to be fair to Shelley Duvall, again... Fine actress in other roles does incredible work. Really, still, she's never spoken like harshly ill about it. She just sort of accepted that it's just an experience and moved on. And I mean, it was a big deal. It got her a lot of other work, you know, and things like that. So she was known for it. It's just a sticking point for me because I have something to compare it to. If they'd never made that other miniseries and I'd never gotten to (laughs) see an actress that I like, like Rebecca DeMornay, play that role, and knowing what that role was supposed to be, and not go like, man, it would be neat just to sort of splice you right into that. I don't know how we can make that work, but
0: oh yeah, it's it's you know it's kind of it's kind of par for the course for for uh, for Kubrick and women. He uh he seems to have a heart again. He just seems I don't know if it's deliberate or not because uh, if you actually look at his you know in his life, his wife and his children are very you know strong people. So it's not like he's it's he's not basing Wendy off of his wife.
1: That leads us to Danny. I've already said it. I thought Danny Lloyd's awesome. I, I thought he was great in this role. I think the character is fascinating, and the fact that they have got a sequel book, and Ewan McGregor's playing him in Doctor Sleep later in 2019, I'm I'm down to see that man and and see what that's going to look like. I know nothing about the story or where it goes, but this is definitely a character coming back to. I would be down for.
0: Oh yeah, just on a, on a side note, that trailer with the, when they said they're making you know a Danny Torrance movie. I was like really you know that that, that you know unless, I was like unless like if they try to pretend I'm not seeing that movie because it's The Shining 2 mm-hmm. I'll be really disappointed then in the trailer they start playing the music from the movie and that that then I got I'm start, now I'm starting to get excited for that movie because it looks like cuz I only want a guy who is a diehard you know Shining fan to make that movie but that's a whole other film Danny in this movie it really is one of the better child child actor performances from back in the day for sure back when kids really sucked in movies like I watched this (laughs) movie Outland for the first time not long ago and the kid who plays Sean Connery's son is so terrible I'm watching it's like God this is the worst one of the worst performances I've ever seen which maybe it's a little harsh to say about a kid but it's you know to compare it to like Danny Lloyd he is fantastic here because it's not just some cute kid has to be scared like you see in a lot of you know horror movies when he does these shining scenes, he really does look like he's going into some kind of a trance, some kind of a state, almost like you know you see Martin Sheen in that first scene in Apocalypse Now where he's going yes. nuts in the hotel, or maybe not exactly like that, but the faces he has to make, like there's the one where he's calling Halloran, where he's, squ- he's squinching his face up and drool is coming out of his face uh, out of his mouth, and the moments where he's seeing the visions and the way kubrick shows this with these you know these smash cuts like we're seeing the blood coming out of the hallway and we smash cut to like his face frozen in a scream like only for like you know a frame or whatever it's got to be in the top three scariest things i've ever seen in my life i have you know i'm 30 years old now i've seen this movie you know gotta be 15 times i still get a little rush in my heart i feel the urge to kind of like avert my eyes it just disturbs me uh uh, to no end. And and so much of that is it's like Danny Lloyd for, you know, it's just some kid who didn't know what he was doing. He was doing, he gave a great performance here.
1: I also, I wonder sometimes how much of that is really true. Because there's some of that, it's like, there's no way he couldn't have been told act like you were absolutely freaked out of your mind. Like, maybe they didn't tell him, like, you're seeing two girls chopped up in a hallway. You know, like they didn't tell him that. But they had to tell him something to get some of that out of him, man. Like, that. It's a performance. And this is not a guy that went on to have like this illustrious career. He's not like Leonardo DiCaprio who's still working, you know, something. This yeah. dude went into nothing. <laughs> like, I don't know what he does there. He was an accountant somewhere or something. But he he didn't, you know, go back to this. And that, I don't know. It, it's, it's a disturbing performance, but it's such a good one. And he's such a likable kid, too. Like, that's the other thing, too, man. You put kids on screen, it's tough to like them. You're like, yeah, you. Unless they're your family, it's like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to go for this, right? This <laughs> kid, no. You totally get in him from the get-go. And the little Tony voice with the finger wag, I'm like, man, yeah. that is genius, you know? And uh, the way that they play that off is so, so good. And he's, he's great in it. And, uh, again, it's a testament to you know, Kubrick, who apparently he's the only person who didn't drive crazy. On the set. Maybe because, you know, there were child labor laws and he couldn't like working the hours that he worked everybody else. But when he had him, he he got what he wanted out of him. And again, to tell the tale of it, they searched far and wide to get him and find him and find him in the Midwest because they wanted somebody with an accent somewhere between Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson. Hmm. And... They kind of got it, and he, he sort of, I don't know, it's sort of almost British, but not really, and I don't, you know, he's just a kid. He just has this sort of straight ahead, but I like how reserved he is, too, like when he's talking with Halloran at the Overlook, and Halloran is trying to tell him, like, oh, man, it's nothing to be, you know, ashamed of or whatever, all this stuff, and he's going like, you don't see what I see, you know, like you can just see it behind his eyes going like, are you out of your mind? You know, but again, I have I have a lot of young nephews and they're really close to me and stuff, but I see them around other adults sometimes and they kind of give them the side eye like eh, I don't know if I trust you to tell you that, you know? And so it's it's neat to see that in a performance.
0: Oh yeah, Kubrick, you know, he he knew what he was doing. He doesn't have too many kids in his movies, but I do notice the times he does have younger actors, for whatever reason, they're pretty good. Like, you know, Barry Linden, one of my favorite performances were the two kids, the, yeah. uh, uh, Barry Lyndon's stepson and his real son were actually, uh, actually, I thought they were very good in the movie.
1: Yeah, no, they were. They both really were. They played this role as well. And so it's not unheard of to have good kid performances. It's just this is one that sticks out as like, oh, wow,
0: you know. Yeah. So
1: and I think we can talk about everybody else as we get into the movie here. Like, Kurt, honestly, like, I have a lot of questions. I just want to ask you about stuff. You did a great plot summary. I think we got the strokes of the film, but I, the way this thing opens, we have to talk about that opening drive and that Helicopter shot across that beautiful landscape, and just that minimalist kind of thumping score. I mean, what a what a mood setter from the first note. You know, I am in for a sinister ride.
0: Oh yeah, like I said, I've seen this. I love this movie. I've seen it a bunch of times, and I have it in my head. Like I've memorized so many of the lines, like that to the point where every time I think of the movie, I smile almost like it's a comedy. When I think of these lines, like. You know, I intend to change my jacket before the fish and goose soiree. And, and so many lines, where, you know, that make me smile. And then every time I sit down and actually try watching the movie, it takes about 30 seconds. That music starts, like the, 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 the synthesizer type, you know, the bomb, bomb music, and that helicopter shot. But then the, the music gets into this, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a ghostly vocal quality, like a shriek. Uh, like, if you ever see, like, the Edward Munch painting The Scream, it's like, this is, like, a sound effect that would go with that painting. It is so disturbing. And, and yes, yeah, sure enough, right away, it just gets my heart going and disturbing. Like, it's like, it's like, it reminds me of a little bit of the opening of uh, uh, Hateful Eight, which is a movie I'm very heads or tails on. But one thing I love is that opening music, and, then, like, the music tells you the story. And, like, in The Shining, the music, same thing. The music tells you things are going to break bad by the end of this movie, and the the music tells you that. And that shot is, by the way, so insane. Although I do notice, for a guy who's such a perfectionist, and you watch the movie, you can plainly see the helicopter in the bottom right (laughs) uh, showing that. But it's still, it's it's a hell of a shot, this helicopter shot. Uh, It's like Sidney Pollack said, Kubrick, he went extreme with everything. Like, if he's going to do a helicopter shot, it's going to be the most extreme helicopter shot you've ever seen in your life. And this is, you know certainly out there. It's an like incredible Craig, landscape.
1: At least could you call that, like, if you know to look for that, you can find it. But you get so blown away by the this oh, yeah. breathtakingly gorgeous, beautiful scenery. And I've been out to the Rockies. It's beautiful. I've been through you know, the Banff National Forest and up in your part of the world. Kurt, it's, oh, yeah. It just takes your breath away. Seeing this stuff and to overlay that with this thum, 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 sort of low thumping strings, depressing funeral dirge (laughs) music, and you see this, what you're seeing is a man driving to his doom. That's what you've come to know having watched this film. And that was my first question for you. We go through the interview and all this stuff. uh, Do you think the Jack Torrance character is haunted by the hotel? And does he get possessed the first time he goes there? Well, one thing that's good about this
0: movie, much like, uh, 2001 is it's very open ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of one reason I almost don't want to see that uh, room 237 because I don't really want definitive answers. I don't think. That oh, I, we, that the, let me just tell you, you,
1: you don't get any definitive <laughs> answers from that. Yeah, you get good, some really God. crazy theories, and some of which, like you can almost follow, and then you realize, like, no, I'm just going to take the blue pill and go back to where I was with it. It's worth oh. seeing for that, but I promise there are no definitive answers of that. Don't don't be fooled by that. Oh,
0: right on, because I know Kubrick would hate that, but but but, but what's great is all these fan theories I've heard, at least for me, they all work. Like, this movie works one way or the other, and I I actually think that, uh, you know, I I think he's not possessed until after he signs up for the job. But one theory I heard that, again, totally works for me, is that uh, Jack Torrance... Is a ghost that he's been a ghost this whole time, and that that's how he's able to see these visions of the hotel. That's mm-hmm. why the the people in the hotel act like they've known they you know they like they know him. Um, but that, again, that's just a theory. They don't necessarily say that. And but uh, whether, you well, know that, that theory works for me. But I like to think it's more just you know he was he become possessed once he you know, steps through the door.
1: And you're right on, you can read it a lot of different ways. I think it's fun to bat around what we think of it. I watched it this time and I was like, I don't know. I can kind of take it like he gets possessed, like he gets possessed by the whatever, Pazuzu, you know, it's the exorcist time. Let's talk about that again. (laughs) You know, he's doing that or something. And then he just, you know, he's he's already kind of unhinged. This just completes it, but Cooper can tell you he's reincarnated, that he's a reincarnated spirit of uh, the hotel demand sacrifice. And so it, draws people in, but it also just reincarnates people, which is why you have two names for this Grady character, and you, the mm. one you see is different than the one they, they tell him about at the interview, because well, maybe it had to reincarnate it, you know, in between, because it's ten years in between the happenings, you know, so you don't know what, I don't sure. know what cycle this is on, it's not as frequent as... You know, the aliens versus predator, you know, pyramid maybe, but it's, it's somewhere in there, right? Like it'll change at some point. And so there's the way Kubrick kind of built it was that, well, he, the, the hotel has to reincarnate. It's thing to come build it, sacrifice for itself. So that's how he read it. But he also said, like, but you can see whatever you want to at it. I mean, it's, it's your scope. Go, go live with it. Uh, the thing he, he would hate if 237 tried to say that this is definitive what it is. He would actually probably, I think yeah. would kind of get a chuckle out of what everybody wanted to do, especially the parts of it that are all about like, and this is how you know he faked the moon landing and all that kind of stuff. Like it's, there's all <laughs> yeah. that kind of stuff in there. But no, I, I think it's fun to watch Jack. Uh, Nicholson roll through this, and what what I found is after the interview and and everything that goes on, there's a lot of like dissolves and stuff. Like we have all these, yeah, there's a lot of dissolves in this movie, and then we get into like smash cut land later on <laughs> into the movie, especially at the end, just like just one big harsh smash cut. Um, and we can talk about that, but it's it's Kubrick's way of easing you into something and then making you feel very unsettled and jarred. You know, it's like it's almost like he's shaking you with you know without having the shaky seats at the moment.
0: Oh yeah, he knows how to he knows how to set the tone, you know, and 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 tell a tale almost like again, like for because I <laughs> I wonder if Kubrick he knew I'm not going to Colorado to shoot a, this movie, so I need to in case I don't get the proper shots, I need to make sure that the dialogue sells the isolation, um, and it really does like even you know the, the way they the way they talk about you know I, I love how when we when we come to the hotel everyone's leaving, mm-hmm. so you you do get that sense of everyone really like. They are going to be as alone as can be, and they just they just create the sense of isolation, even though it's in you know we're in the United States, probably people are only probably three hour drive away, but it's like they might as well be on, on another planet
1: yeah, and this is at a time when you couldn't get to the place like the idea of something being literally cut off from civilization is not hard to understand, and even today, like I can imagine places that i've seen that i'm like. Man, if it really snowed you in there, you could be alone for a good bit. And you know, I'm as introverted as the next introvert, but total isolation, that, that would get to me on some level. And I, I love how this movie just slow burns with Jack Torrance, where you see him. He's bouncing a ball off a wall because he doesn't know what to write. He doesn't know what to do. You know, he's just he's coming unglued piece by piece there's a a scene later where Danny and his mother are playing outside of things after the first snow and they're running through the maze or or something and Jack's just sort of staring out the window at him and like the look on his face is like uh he's gone bye bye yeah it's he's he's out yeah. you know and and it's but you see it. But it's even one earlier. They're walking through the maze. This is an awesome shot too. For 1980, he looks down on a model of the hedge maze, and you know that Danny and Wendy are walking through it. And you see these two little figures starting to walk around, and then we just slow zoom into it, and we're into them. And I was like, man, in 1980, that like nowadays you do that on a computer, it renders in four hours, and nobody cares. That took weeks to even like conceive in 1979, 1980. Oh yeah,
0: that shot is like it's it's interesting because it's not a, it's like we're in this horror movie, and we have this vi- this little visual effects moment that isn't necessarily frightening, but it's it's brilliant. Like they fi- they just I guess they took a they filmed a miniature, and they took a they literally took a helicopter, and apparently Kubrick is on the end of like a a ladder or something, and he's like he's got his ha- eye in the viewfinder as they're hovering directly over a real maze. And they just kind of soup. They cut the thing. They blur blend the two things together. But yeah, that shot, especially the way they cut to you know this idea of Jack, you know, uh, watching them in the maze, is uh, is great. And also that moment where he's, where he's looking at him out the window is a, a classic uh, Kubrick image of that. The head, <laughs> the head tilted down, the eyes tilted up, and just staring because we get that in. Uh, we get that in two thousand and one. We get that mm-hmm. in clock, the opening of Clockwork Orange and in Full Metal Jack and so on. He's a, I, I would love to ask him. It's like why do you – he did that in pretty much all of his movies? Whatever it is, it's it's like I said, it's like real is good, interesting is better because you know I've never seen anybody do that.
1: Well, you're watching these characters that are like I. This is my theory about it is that these characters that in some way in their own world think they are God in some way and that's God's view. You know, whatever it is like, I think you can read it that way, particularly 2001, this movie in Full Metal Jacket that we'll talk about next like that. I think you can look at it that way. And it's sort of what he's trying to say. And What what you realize is that if you're looking down on something from that point of view and you think you're over it, what's above you looking down on you like that? You know, because it's that sort of the, I guess, Ansel Adams, you know, art in my head or whatever is like, you think you're a big deal, but then pull back, you know, 20,000 feet and really you're not, you know?
0: Oh, for sure. And that's actually, that's, that's a decent, uh, place to talk about this. One thing I love, again, thing about Kubrick I love is when he doesn't tell you exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's a throwaway line of dialogue that, uh, Ullman says. It's like, yeah, they built it, you know, 1907, took them two years on an Indian burial ground, and they actually fended off some Indian attacks during the construction. Yeah. It takes three seconds to say, it opens the door to like, you know, you could do a 10 hour mini series on everything about the history of this hotel this idea i like this idea that the indians were attacking not to attack the builders but to like to warn them to because they know what's there it's like this it's like this great uh this movie uh the a horror movie came out a couple years ago called the witch set in you know uh yeah 1600s and my favorite shot in the movie our main characters is this family that have been banished from the village and there's this POV shot of them and you know, they're leaving the village and, and the gates are closing on this village. And we see three Indians are, they're the only people that are staring at our characters. And they have this look on their face, like stupid white people. Cause they know <laughs> what's out there. They yeah. know the horrors that are out there in the American wilderness. And I like to think of something similar happened in, you know, when they were building this hotel in the turn of the century. Because there's some, you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't know who, what Indians they buried, but so there's some, you know, insane, uh, evil spirits going on there.
1: I catch you. Don't go up above them trees there. Uh, the Mi'kmaqs knew uh, that ground went south. <laughs> I mean, really, King, fan of King would use that, you know, years later and, uh, quite well, I might add. Um, just on a side note, by the way, Pet Cemetery may be the closest page to screen that ever got adapted that first one. Um, For Hmm. as kind of cheesy as and eighties as that movie is, that that's like reading that book and seeing it come to life, and it's freaky. Hearing you talk about this stuff, though, man, like talking about Danny Lloyd's reactions to the scenery and all this stuff, like the hairs are sticking up on my arm and my neck right now. Like (laughs) this movie just has this unsettling but completely hypnotic way to it. And we should admit, like this is a slow movie. Like this movie sure. is real, like you get a lot of exposition, but then there's like stretches of minutes where it's a mom talking to a kid and a bunch of thumping noise and nothing's happening. You know, you're just seeing little stuff, but then Kubrick knows when just to put enough on the bait to keep you hooked. Danny's playing in the games room. And then there's two twins just staring at him, Lisa and Louise Burns, who will forever go down as the creepiest people I've ever seen on screen. Like, it's like, take Wednesday, Adams, but just give her a complete blank expression. And when they talk in unison and play with us forever and there, I mean, it's, whoo, you know, I mean, and I have, a, I have a young niece who has a voice that she's not British, but it kind of huh. rolls the same way. It has that. And I'm, I was with her last weekend and I'm going like, just stop doing that because I have this <laughs> on the brain. And it's just funny because it's like cute, but it's also very sinister and weird. He knows when to throw that in and then they just turn around and walk away. And it's like, what the hell is that? You know, and Danny's riding his big wheel through the you know, the maze that is this hotel, which is mirrored by the maze outside. By the way, the hedge maze is not in the book. That's a Kubrick thing. Great move, mm. because in the book it's topiaries, it's animals cut into you know out of hedges and they move around. And it's as right. dumb as you think it is. Uh yeah. go watch that ninety seven thing, it, they do it in that, and it's awful. The maze, great t- yeah. t- but the hotel's a maze too. Danny's riding around, and he keeps bumping into these girls. They get the flash of like their grisly death. It's just ah, you know it' all this stuff to keep you unsettled and unhinged, and then we go into you know huge rooms where somebody's throwing a tennis ball against the wall because they don't know what to write, you know and he loses it on his wife when she interrupts him and you know but because he's probably typing nothing. he's probably typing pages of all oh, work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, you know, <laughs> but he doesn't want her to know that at the top
0: yeah you are talking about you know this the 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 slow pace of this movie It's really weird watching this movie after Barry Lyndon where you can tell it's it's this, it's the exact same crew that made this movie it's so many of the same techniques it's just you know he has something much more easily something you can engage with with the with the story but it's those same slow zooms and this same level I don't think Ken Adam did the sets for this movie, but these you know massive Massive sets, yeah. He built, you know, this you know palatial uh, hotel in England. And one thing I love about that room where he's in the playing the tennis ball—I don't know what room you would call that—but the uh, my favorite thing about that is the uh, the uh, the windows, especially in the scene later on where he starts to lose it, is the the way they simulate white out. Uh, winter mm-hmm. conditions by just they just blasted in these lights right out, in the studio right outside the glass to make it look like it's you know blinding snow and it looks like blinding snow I haven't been in quite that level of snow up in Canada but it's it is it is so realistic I I bet. Uh, Kubrick, he's he, hes hes a master with this kind of thing. I'll bet you if you didn't know any better, you would just think they did go to Colorado to, and shot in this giant hotel out in the mountains.
1: Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about this is like the the hotel's geography, like if you try to draw it out, it doesn't make any sense. But you get lost in that and you just don't think about it because you see this beautiful outside shot and then you go inside and what you don't realize is that you're in a studio. You're in a set in Elstree, you know, and, and it's just he built the hotel to his liking you know, inside of another thing instead of finding the hotel and shooting. No, I'll just build one, you know, and did it all for $19 million. It's interesting to note that Roy Walker is the production designer on this who did Barry Lyndon, did Barry Lyndon, Mm. did this, did eyes wide shot. Those are his three Kubrick films. And so it's neat to see somebody who can take those big wide open spaces and those castles, Right. And then basically recreate American castles are our big hotels. Like we don't have castles. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, really they are like there, there are big luxury resorts and things like that. And so I get it. It's the same sensibility, you know, even though it's not America. At all. It doesn't even exist. Like it, and if you think about it, it couldn't exist either. Like this, it, it, there's, you know, there's one reading of this movie is that you're actually seeing the dreams of Jack Torrance and the book he is writing. But normally everything hmm. happens as normal. He and his wife and his son spend a winter in Colorado. He writes this amazing book and he ends it with his, you know, his own character that he's kind of thrown into a story dying. You know, he kind of works Hmm. on his own fears and then they go away, you know, and that's, that's what it is. And I don't, that's not, I don't think it was what Kubrick intended. I know that's not what Stephen King story is about, but it's an interesting reading of it. If you want to have that, you can, you can do that. There's tons of good YouTube videos in that. I mean, you can fall down the rabbit hole watching these uh, on that, but the, no, the set designs of this, they draw you in because it should be mentioned, the hotel is like the fifth character <laughs> in the movie. Oh, yeah. It may even be the fourth one. It may even be more important than Halloran, who's really kind of the, I hate to say the stereotypical like magical black man, but he kind of plays that role. Mm. And he's there to sort of advance the idea of what The Shining is, and I think Scatman Crothers gives a great performance. And by all accounts, he's just another person that Kubrick tortured, you know, the entire set and hated this and hated being a part of it, but gave a good performance nonetheless. Um, But his scenes with Danny are great. But he really, he—you could argue that the hotel's a bigger character than he is because it is a living thing. This hotel is alive. Oh,
0: yeah, as far as movie, uh, locations, like fictional locations, this is, as far as horror movies go, I think this is number one. It's yeah. like number two is like, you know, the Nostromo in, in, uh, in Alien. Number three is, you know, just that, that, whatever that, what you want to call that little bit of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, surrounding the Orca is, is number three. And yeah, that hotel, it's so weird. I mean, uh, a couple of years ago for work, we went up to this, to this mountain in, in, uh, uh Lake Louise, I think it's called in Alberta, at this hotel, very palatial in the mountains. And it was, I mean, everyone else was thinking about the, you know, the, the seminar they were at. I was spent the entire time going, I, this is, this is too much like the overlook. <laughs> and I, the entire, like, just stepping outside at night looking around, it's like, oh man, like, I, I, you know, the only thing I was missing, I should have had the, the midnight and the stars and you. 1920 song playing on my headphones, walk around that place because it was so eerie. Second I got home, I had to watch The Shining immediately because it's such, you know, flashbacks.
1: But yeah. Kid, kid, kid you not. I, I was out in Denver, Colorado earlier in 2019 for a conference, right? In a brand new resort that has been built out there. It's really like right across from the airport. Gorgeous place. This is the Gaylord in Colorado. Go look it up online. Beautiful glass, wide open. It's out in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing around it yet. Gorgeous. And I got to thinking in my head as I was looking at it and taking pictures of it. I mean, it's, it's sunny. It's, you know, it's spring, so it's real pretty and everything. And then things are just starting to turn green. And I was like, I wonder what this would look like in winter, the way it gets here in Colorado. So, and I, I honestly started kind of humming that song in my head. I was having the same moment, Kurt. I was walking yeah. around going like, "This doesn't <laughs> look anything like it." But they had like rooms that were sort of made up in some of that kind of decor. And I thought, man, coming out here when it was snowy, I would be having total like shining flashbacks and stuff. Oh and it's, yeah, it's it's in your head if you see it. Well, you see this and you go into any big hotel anywhere. I I dare say you can't th- not think about this movie and and that scenery.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and also, you're talking about, uh, Halloran. He's one of my favorite, uh, parts of this movie. Scatman Crothers, awesome character actor who, aside from this, I know from Twilight Zone, the movie, where he oh, was yeah. the only good actor in that weak Spielberg segment, but he was great playing this, like, you know, Spectre of Death or whatever you want to call him. And he's in One Floor with the Cuckoo's Nest with, with Nicholson. And he was hysterically funny as the night shift guy. And he's, you know, fantastic actor. And here, I almost when I was watching it this time, it's always like he's playing Professor X, a bald guy with psychic powers, (laughs) trying to teach this you you know young child how to use his mutant abilities. And (laughs) I never, I did think Danny Lloyd as
1: an X Men, but you know what, it works.
0: Oh, for sure. And I think I think Crothers he totally dodges the over the top nature of the acting in this movie. He felt very real and naturalistic to me. He has one of the only genuine intentional laughs in this movie where he asked Danny, he says, do you like ice cream? He says, "Yes, yeah. like, <laughs> I thought you did. And it's like, it's just this tiny moment, but like, clearly he just started, like if you see it a second time, he was reading his mind, uh, that, you know, totally. as soon as, as soon as he saw him.
1: Yeah. I think what he does is as everybody else is playing it kind of big, particularly Nicholson is playing it big and Duvall will play it big. He plays it very underneath, very cool as, as he would be, you know, he's been around the overlook for a long time and he shines, Right, so if we were to believe that about him, he knows what this hotel can do, and it hasn't been able to corrupt him, which I think is interesting because you get the idea that the hotel wants Danny because he's so good and has such power. Like, if I can get him, man, that'll really be a collection to put. It's like an infinity stone or something. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's the way it kind of plays in the book too. Is like the evil energy of the hotel really wants Danny. Like it'll get him through Jack, but it really wants Danny because Danny's like a super mutant. Right. But the fact that Howlren hasn't given into the temptation, hasn't been able to be corrupted by it. It's almost like the hotel's pissed off at him about it. And it's one Hmm. of the reasons it kills him. You know, it, it, one, it, you know, demands sacrifice or whatever. But I think, I think the hotel tries to kill him because it's like, I can't get to that one. So I'm going to make sure I take it out.
0: Oh yeah, that that scene of him and Danny and the explanation of what the shining is. That's one of my favorite scenes in any Kubrick movie. They're both so great in that scene. Crothers really knowing how to play a dialogue scene with a kid and the way he goes mm. about it. Like this is a man explaining psychic powers, but he's totally and the way Kubrick wrote it, too, the way he's telling it in a way a child could understand. It has a sweetness to it you don't expect from Kubrick. It's something, you know, Spielberg would do. Right. Also, what I love what I love about just as as a whole is this movie as a horror movie that the title, you know, The Shining, it's a positive thing, really. It's like with the way he talks about it, like it's something his grandmother called just to use this telepathy they use to talk to each other. Like there's nothing inherently scary about that word at all. And you know, when you hear The Shining, you, you, know, you think of this one of the scariest movies. And the way he explains to a child that the Overlook is haunted is both sweet and horrifying. Because he's trying to work out how do I tell this kid He's probably going to see some scary shit in the next few months. And the way he, like, you can see it, the way Crothers is, like, he's thinking about it. It's like, well, let's, you know, when somebody burns toast, it can leave a trace of itself behind, right? And he's like, he's explaining, you know, same thing goes with murder. Like, if you kill somebody, like, I like that in certain horror stories, the idea if you kill somebody, that's how you wind up with a ghost. Like, you know, like in the sixth sense, like, those ghosts are particularly angry and everything. Also, I kind of feel for Halloran watching the movie last time, because I'm thinking... He's working at this place, you know, what is it, whatever, you know, eight months out of the year. He probably has to see these ghosts every single day, but he's okay with it because he, he knows that there is like in the sixth sense, they can't touch you. Like it's just, you know, it's like he's learned how to shut them out and just get on, you know, <laughs> carrying on, you know, making a steak for the guy in, the guy in room 237 or whatever. But the idea that he has to tell, like the idea is, you know, he has to tell this kid that. And that's the best moment of that scene is out of nowhere, Danny says, What's in room 237? And Crothers, again, he's so good. He doesn't yell at Danny or anything, but he talks to him like a parent warning a child. And he says, I have to tell this kid. I, I can't, I'm can't. i not going to be mean to this kid, but how do I get this kid to not go in that damn room? And he says, there ain't nothing in room 237. But you ain't got no business going in there anyway, so stay out, all right? Stay out. And, of course, it's just it's just a brilliant, chilling way of making an audience remember just that number, 237, when it pops up in another 45 minutes. Um, because it's made this guy who's not afraid of ghosts, it makes him afraid, whatever's in there. And it's a, just a, a brilliant uh, uh, bit of horror from Kubrick there.
1: I'm glad you you said it that way because that's exactly the way I read it too. Is that the guy that is not afraid of this pl- place at all, there's one thing he won't cross over either because yeah. he knows. Like, that might get to me. Like, I'm not going to do it. And I'll tell you now, as a little kid, that was the scene that I had in my head, could not sleep, you know, because I couldn't get that out of my head. You know, and and just the the, the woman and the way she turns and that whole bit, it's just, whew. You know, and even to this day, like, it's still very, it's one of the most effective horror scenes ever. The slow burn into dissolve into madness is what that is. And, um, I, you know, it's, it's a great haunted house trick. I mean, it really is. But what I think is neat is that this hotel, as Danny is riding around, you get the sense that he's not really going anywhere. He's just Hmm. riding around. You know, I, I remember riding my bike as a kid. I kind of always knew where I was heading. You know, like I knew where I was allowed to ride and stuff and I, you know, kind of kept up with it. It was just what I did. I never just rode until I didn't know where I was. And I almost wonder if the hotel is not like leading him to that room hmm. in some way. Because he goes by it and the door's closed and he sees it and he can't get in the door that first time. And, but his curiosity is stoked, right? So then the little girls kind of border him in down that way and the door's open with the key in it the next time. And that's when he goes in and of course, you know, he gets he's apparently attacked by the woman and comes out bruised up and all that stuff and then we get to see Jack do it too. But I don't know course I 'cause I i I've through the years just read it as the hotel is going to compel him to go to that. And like any child, if you tell him not to do something, I mean that that's like, you know, putting the bait out there like go to it. Even if you do it in a real good stern way like he did that can be worn down over time it's like if I just keep seeing that 237 I just gotta know what's in there you know and he's a curious kid just uh, just on the whole a brilliant thing Kubrick does with you know
0: setting the tone is you know they keeps repeating you guys are gonna be alone here for five months so when Danny first sees those two girls it's while well, everyone's packing up could very easily be you know they're someone's kid it could be guests of the hotel so you know so you don't really think much of it but the idea is we cut to a month later they're definitely isolated and he sees them again it's just such an instant way of like they're supposed to be alone and it's like that what, what did i hear like a classic one line horror story it's like he was the last man in the world and there was a knock at the door it's like what's the scariest thing you could possibly encounter is just anybody else in this place let alone you know what this kid encounters which you know i mean again like play like almost like almost like almost get a sense of like seven like what you don't see is scarier I don't even want to picture what exactly happened when Danny went through that door. Cause he's covered, oh god, he's covered in bruises, his shirt's ripped, and you see what the woman looked like. It's like, that is, oh, that's disturbing.
1: Yeah. And what you would think is, and what I've always sort of wondered is like, does it manifest differently for each person? Because for Jack, it's this gorgeous, you know, woman who walks out of a tub naked. And it's, you know, it's, it's every fantasy, right? That he's got yeah. that he doesn't have because he's a complete contrast to, uh, Sally Duvall. And yeah. then to turn into the hideous thing that she is, like, I wonder, like, maybe for Danny, it's like this person cooking dinner or something like that. Like, you know, it's something that would draw him yeah. in. Cause I don't think he would be sexually attracted to her. He no. would probably be like, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, and walk out of the room, what would bring him in and then for it to turn on him. And you know, it doesn't kill him though. That's, that's the thing. And that's, what's interesting about this is howler tells him they can't touch you. They can't hurt you, but clearly they can, right? Like they, they grab his neck and kind of bruise him up a little bit. So I, it's got, there's some corporeal power to these ghosts.
0: Yeah, and that, again, that's one of the things I like that they don't entirely explain is why the hotel is sort of after Danny. As I understand it, they explain it a lot more in the book. It's like it's a direct thing. The hotel wants him. Like, I mean, right. They, wants his they want his power. Yeah. Want yeah, they want to, it wants to, the hotel senses his power. But I like that they don't explain that and it just makes it all the more insidious of like what are you doing going after a kid and what may, and he, all, all the more insidious is that when jack is basically told in so many words we need you to kill your kid he does, he, he doesn't act confused by that you know, it's like when he's when he's when he's told we're going to you know got to handle this in the most uh, gruesome way possible. It's like I I can't remember the exact line, but it's like there's nothing I look forward to more. Or whatever it is, he said.
1: Oh yeah, I, I mean, there's two conversations he has with the ghost of Delbert Grady, and, and I love how you dropped it in the plot summary too. Where Tilbert goes like, I had to correct my daughter. I had yeah. to correct my wife. And he just rolls, Philip Stone just rolls that off of his tongue, you know, and it's, again, it's another, you know, Barry Lyndon hangover there. And it's it's watching this guy do that, and it's like, whoa. And you see Jack starting to go like, oh, that's what you call it. And then when he's at the pantry, and he's like, will you handle this swiftly? Because I'm not going to let you out if you're not going to take care of business. You know, because... This little demure woman beats you in the head with a bat. And, you know, we didn't think she was going to be that form, formidable, but clearly she is. And Jack's like, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to have my word. And the way he says it, it's yeah. just. Oh yeah, it's like well, yeah, he's gone. It's uh, it's over now. You know, it's 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 happening. And he, I mean, he goes directly to him, man. I mean, he he tears that room apart with that axe. And I little is a fun side story. I I didn't realize this. Jack Nicholson apparently like had been a firefighter at one time in his life, and they had the (laughs) fake. They had like the fake door up, and he just destroyed it. So they put a real one up and made him break through the real one. You know, because right he knew off. how to swing an axe. He you know how to do it, you know, and, and there's a great behind the scenes. You see him kind of warming up with the axe and Shelley Duvall is looking at it like, Oh God, please don't hit me with that. You know, <laughs> she's like, please just let me survive this. So, and to get through it, but no, it's, it all this tension is building up. Right. And the, we get the crazy woman in the room and the way all that, that comes down. And we, we do get a great scene though, when, Wendy confronts Jack with the bat in the big open room, right? And he's going up the stairs after her. And it's just this sort of cat and mouse. And I, I mean apparently it's a lot of ad lib here too, from Nicholson going like, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your freaking skull in, you know? Yeah. And he's just you know, he's it's so sinister to hear him, it's very Joker esque to hear him saying it to her and the way Duval is just absolutely freaking out about it. Uh, it's one of the times I thought her performance was really good. Like I was like, hey, no, that's a, that's a good natural reaction. You should be doing that. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, but yeah, the thing she gets the drop on him is is yeah. what's neat.
0: Yeah, Jack didn't see, he didn't uh, see that coming. He thought he could take his wife, and he was <laughs> he was wrong. And yeah, that that whole scene. I mean, obviously, the beginning of that scene is you know the finding of the pages and the talk about making something that isn't necessarily scary, blood curdlingly terrifying it guy wrote a couple he wrote the same sentence on a piece of paper you could do that on a computer and just hold copy and paste take it five seconds but such a simple way of indicating not just kind of crazy but absolutely bonkers lost your damn mind is it's like gotta be 400 pages and they all have the same thing and i like i love duvall's she's not necessarily scared it's almost like she's she's crying uh for him it's like my husband's lost his mind. He's been in here for the last month typing the same thing. And Jack coming in saying, How do you like it? <laughs> it's like yeah, right when we're thinking this guy is this guy's lost his mind. And uh I think at this point he's he's had the talk with uh with Delbert about he's, mm-hmm. he's whatever he's gonna do something to this family. So after so then we see he's lost his mind and then you know the way he very slowly walking towards her. You don't necessarily know what he's going to do with his bare hands, but you know, he's, you know, you know if, if he did, if she didn't knock him out, he would have, he would have done something. But Nicholson in that scene he is so good. That's like, he is so big and over the top. But the way Kubrick shoots it you with know, that, with that, you know, the, the white out light coming through the windows and that music, uh, I think, I think some of the music was composed, but a lot of this music on the soundtrack is just, music from the you know, 1930s classical composers mm-hmm. Bella Bartok or Bela Bartok is his name and some of that music is so it is so terrifying that it was like it's like this guy knew he was going to be put that someone was going to put this in a horror movie it was so terrifying wow. to listen to Right. Well, like, you miss- read
1: about it, like, it's, it's some sort of, like, ode to his mother or something. I don't know that, but like, you know, it'd be funny <laughs> oh, if it was, because that would be exactly something like Kubrick would repurpose as a part of yeah. this, you know. But you're right. I mean, that's the thing about good classical scores is that you can take a piece of music that's intended for one set of emotions and just flip it into a different scene and it gives you a, another set, right? And I think the thing about Wendy that I got, and it, it's a stress reaction, that her first inclination is to kind of laugh. Like she sort of chuckles a little bit and then Mm -hmm. she starts to get like really nervous. And then she starts freaking out because not only is the sentence typed over and over, it's typed in formation, Kurt, it's in Christmas trees. It's slanted left. It's all right. (laughs) It's kind of going one side. I mean, it's, we had to elaborately think about the madness to line that sentence up over and over and over. It's, it's such an effective tool And Kubrick lays it out perfectly, and I I, it it's one of the coolest like reveals because it is the final note. Like if you weren't sure is Jack Torrance like gone? Oh yeah, he's gone. It's it's over for him at this point. If you weren't sure, and the fact that Wendy gets out of it though is not not what you expect again because in lesser films like he would take her out and then Danny would have to come in and psychically you know zap his dad into the wall or something and then run away in the snow. But that's not that's not this movie. It's not that story thankfully, and we get much better. I mean, I mean, she's the smart thing too, man. She's like, not only did I hit him in the head with the bat, lesser horror women would have run out the window, right, or run out the door. She's like, well, I gotta lock this dude up so he can't get to anybody. She knows this hotel is as good as he does, probably better, because she's been the one doing all the damn work, <laughs> and so she throws him in the pantry of the freezer. And I'm like, that's a, that's a great move, Wendy. That's smart. So, But she just didn't count on the ghost coming to unlock it for him, which that is messed up.
0: Oh yeah, that, that moment, it's like, I never, th- I never thought about it. I've seen, you know, when I saw the movie at ten times at that point, and it never really occurred to me. I think it was someone on the DVD, one of the people they were talking to said, they love that moment because it's the only time in the movie that there is a thousand percent thing you cannot attribute to hallucination or cabin fever is, Somebody lo- unlocked that door because it definitely wasn't Wendy and it definitely wasn't Danny. And it just makes you, it's just so unsettling, this idea of, you know, they, ch- like, what else could they choose to do if they really wanted to? It's like, but, and th- this thing they choose to do is unleash this uh, madman to go butcher his own family. It is just, you know, as it, the movie, just, <laughs> it just keeps ramping up these levels of, uh, you know, Horror and and being disturbing, and that's 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 one of the freakiest bits.
1: Something you get from multiple watchings too, I think, is to realize that if you follow along with what Kubrick basically intended and kind of what the main line is, is that this hotel is recreating this horror for itself because it needs the energy from it or whatever the sacrifice Mm -hmm. of it, and so it has to go through these you know really elaborate steps to recreate this. And how many times has the hotel had to do this? You know, you start thinking since since nineteen oh seven, you're like. How often has this hotel had to do this? You know, like at least since 1921, because if that's when we're to believe it starts, you know, so this cycle is every, you know, seven, hmm. eight times now. I mean, really, like that's, that's, you can just boggle yourself thinking about how many times does this happen, you know? And I mean, spoiler alert, in the book, the hotel gets destroyed, at the end of it, mm. because they, they drop a line and they're like, okay, "You got to watch the boiler." And in the book, like, there's a chapter about you got to watch the boiler, and this whole guy ranting about the boiler, and you get his whole like backstory because Stephen King goes down rabbit holes and stuff too. But like, they don't check the boiler, and the boiler freaking explodes. Like that's it's part of the 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 thing, and in the, in the movie, mm-hmm. it's part of the ticking time clock too that that happens in the book. And I'm glad they don't do that here, and that it's left intact so that it can just do it again. Because, I mean, that that's yeah. one thing Kubrick <laughs> was right about. It's just like at the end of Halloween. Like, you shoot him, he's on the ground, and then he's gone. You know, and it takes 40 years for us to ruin that. But, you know, the, in the end, like, oh, that that's a creepy ending that he's still out there somewhere, right? You know, the idea is that it's still out there among us, right? It's It's still... You know, out there. Well, maybe that was the end of the Friday the thirteenth movie too. It's like Jason's still out there, right? As <laughs> dumb and as that movie is and as dumb fun as it is. It's you gotta leave people on the idea that like, well, you just thought you got away. And like even something like Jaws, right? The sharks destroyed. It's not the only shark in the ocean, right? Sure. You know, and I mean yeah, I've always been creeped out by those guys swimming back on the you know, the two uh buoys, and I'm like, But that's that's sail, you look like a seal. Like you're just yep. you're <laughs> so, like, well, I know we're at that happy ending Spielberg and you're not thinking it, but I am. So, but I mean, that's, and this, this movie ends with the idea of like, and it's just going to happen again. Right. You know, and I don't know. It's, we haven't got code of the ending yet, but I, we're ramping up to it. And when the freezer unlocks, man, all hell breaks loose. Cause Jack's going through the hotel with his ax, right? The iconic face in the door, the here's Johnny line, which apparently Kubrick didn't watch the tonight show. So had no idea what the hell that was. And was just Is like Is that right? Sure. Yeah, he had no idea what that was. Nicholson just <laughs> did it and on like take eighty eight or whatever, because he was just worn out and, and you can see it on his face. And Kubrick left it in and by happenstance left it in. Like could have just took another one where he said something else or whatever the line was supposed to be. And it was years later he realized that like, oh, that's a thing. Like, he'd had no idea. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, it's just, just like, well, I, clearly the man was, was probably still trying to write his Napoleon movie while the Tonight Show was on and didn't pay attention uh, to Ed McMahon and his, his great lines. <laughs> but you get all that. Um, we talked about Halloran's death. It's gruesome. It's really one of the bloodiest things next to the elevator pour out that we get in the movie. Um, and I mean, we talk about like great sound editing too. Jack comes around the corner, hits him with that axe. And, I mean, you hear that thud. Into that you know the chest cavity with that axe, and it 's yeah uh, it's just it just makes my skin crawl thinking about it yeah
0: that that shot it 's a super long must be at least sixty seconds of hollerran very slowly walking down the hall, and it 's a scene that I, I find unintentionally funny, it still works as a scary scene, but it is just so weird he 's been that jack was just hiding behind a column. With this axe the whole time and just buries it into his into his chest and it's it's you know sc- I love that sc- that uh, the, you know guttural scream uh, Nicholson lets out in that scene, mm-hmm. um, but yeah that's you know, that it is, I remember yeah, I was watching it you know the other day thinking you know for such it's such a scary movie. And I think of it as such, you know, violent, bloody movie. There's exactly one, well, two, uh, technically two deaths if you count, you know, Jack Friesen and death. But, you know, it's like this very, very low body count mm-hmm. for such a, you know, classically, you know, movie known for its, for its violence and blood.
1: good haunted house movies though don't have a lot of kills they just have a lot of scares right I mean this is when the movie goes full haunted house and I got a question for you here because Wendy's running around and she sees some really weird stuff okay Um, yeah the the furry costume and the sexual Uh encounter that's going on that's its own like you could spend a day talking about what that's supposed to be the skeletons in the ballrooms downstairs in the lobby and all this stuff and my question to you is like Danny could see these things because the shining the hotel gets sort of projected to him has the hotel like reached like maximum potency or something that it can now manifest that stuff for Wendy or does she have the shining and just not know it like i i don't know how you're supposed to read that as how does she all of a sudden see all this weird stuff
0: well yeah again it's 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 pretty open it, it would make sense that uh you know some people say that the you know Jack and Wendy have the shining which is why mm-hmm. uh, uh Danny has it but I always like the idea, especially in haunted house movies, like whether it's The Sixth Sense or, or, or Poltergeist, I like the idea of ghosts, uh, being bored and just wanting to mess with people and, and like wanting to scare people. So I like to think that that's the overlook is, I don't think it's trying to hurt Wendy because it realized, I think it can see, oh, he's going out into the maze, it's all over. So he's, so he's thinking, the hotel just wants to scare the living, uh, daylights out of her. And those, it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> Talk about something that isn't necessarily scary being scary. It's just this, again, this idea that we're supposed to be isolated and all of a sudden there's a guy in a bear costume who's going down on some guy in a bed. It's, it's, it's very funny, but in the context of where they're supposed to be alone, it is absolutely terrifying. And I've been in a hotel, uh, uh where Uh, Completely unbeknownst to me, there was a furry convention going on. I can tell you that (laughs) is accurate. It's a a long story, but we were there to have brunch. They were doing something else in the hotel, and I can tell you that that scene in The Shining is every bit as disturbing as it was for me on this uh, day in question, but that's a whole other thing.
1: (laughs) Oh, my Um, goodness. I admit, wow. I, I did not expect that to be a reveal on the show tonight. Wow, man. Like. Yeah, that was that. Was, that, that, was, that yeah, that, I mean, that's like the time I went to Vegas. It was the Electric Daisy Carnival, but it's not nearly as crazy. But I didn't know what the hell was going on. I just knew it was not a part of what I was there for. You
0: uh-huh. know? so <laughs>
1: wow. But but yes, this this section of the movie, like that
0: scene, is absolutely terrifying. Especially that that zoom in. It just it just makes something very bizarre, you know, so scary. And it's such a simple thing of walking into that room, that giant room, and all of a sudden it's dark. There's skeletons and cobwebs. It's like something, it's probably, you know, incredibly cheap. It's like, yeah, go down to the Halloween store, get some skeletons. It is, it's 20 seconds long. It is one of the, that's one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Because it's, it's one of those things like, there's a lot of that in this movie. Of sort of, I call, can you imagine type horror. Like, I think, like, the Babadook was good at, at that. Where it's like, can you imagine if you did, you know, let's say you woke up at 3 in the morning, go get a drink of water, and you turn around and you saw that if you saw the Babadook or if you woke up and you saw all of a sudden your living room was full of skeletons that you didn't know were there or something like that. It just, it's psychologically, it's just, at least it clicks with me where it's like, that would be the most, that, that would give me a heart attack and I would die on the spot. And then the, the, the final, you know, the cycle of this, the elevator, uh, of blood that she sees, uh, that, that image, like I keep talking about in these movies, Kubrick, Whether the movie's good or bad, he has all, he always has these moments, uh, that you just will remember for the rest of your life, whether it's a particular shot or something. And that's one of them, is this image of, I don't know if he got that from the book or not, but that image of the elevator doors opening and blood gushing down this hallway is so, it's, it's, it's terrifying in the movie. It's actually scarier in a different context, which is they, one of the teasers for the movie is just that shot of the hallway. And the credits going down the screen saying, you know, based on the best selling novel by Stephen King, starring Jack Nicholson, The Shining. And it's just all one shot. The blood just starts pouring out. It's that shot, all, all in one shot. They don't cut away. It is so, it's so in and of itself uh, disturbing and terrifying in that I encourage everyone to check out that trailer. It's, it's gotta be the best bit of advertising I've ever seen. And fun fact, apparently, how did Kubrick get a, a teaser trailer in theaters involving, uh, gallons and gallons of blood. Apparently told the censors, Oh, that's just rusty water. It's not blood. And they bought it. So that's how that you get, you know, the bloodiest trailer in the history of film.
1: Think about the level of scares for Wendy at the end there and what happens. She walks in on two people having sex, which is supposed to be like this embarrassment scare. But the fact that they both yeah. stare at her Yeah. You know, almost like you want to join? Or yeah. <laughs> you're just going to stand there and watch. And so it's unnerving. It's like, uh, that's not really what I wanted to do, right? The whole dog man yeah. thing, all, all that kind of stuff. And then you go into the, and hey, here's a bunch of skeletons of all the dead people that have been here before. You know, that's just classic. It's like, whoo, you know, the, I, the dead people scared. You know, it's not grotesque. It's gross and it's scary, but it, there's not meat hanging off them or whatever. And then yeah. as if she can't be freaked out enough, here's a river of blood. Get the yeah. hell out of my hotel is pretty much yeah. what the hotel <laughs> is saying is like, fine, leave. And <laughs> she goes <laughs> you know, wisely again. You know, I'll give Wendy credit for this, for a, an actress that has played the character to be dumber than she really is. She's smart enough to go and be like, mm, I'm out. You know, yep, I'm done. Yeah. Peace. You know, and she runs out of two to find, you know, Halloran's, uh, snow Cause We had talked about before, like Jack's disabled the radio. He's torn up their snow cat, all this stuff. So Halloran kind of sacrifices himself so she can live and Danny can live ultimately too. We got to talk about that chase through the, the two part chase through the hedge maze with Danny mm-hmm. running ahead of, of Jack and how smart Danny is to go breaks. Back up, hide in the hedge, yep. and let him go right by. And I'm like, man, this is well. You know, I keep bringing it up. It's the Top Gun move that you know happens for years. Right, yeah. you just go hit the brakes, and they fly right on by. And I'm like, what? A, what a genius move by a kid. And having again having nieces and nephews that like to play hide and go seek, this is exactly the kind of move one of them pulls. And I'm like, well, that's that's pretty smart. But they never get it over on me because I've seen this movie too
0: much. Yeah, that that scene is uh, it's a hell of a climax. And uh, again, you're right. This movie goes from like being kind of scary to. Like it's very slow and everything, but that last, you know, five minutes is so fast and explosive. Like, kind of like that last couple minutes of Jaws where the, you know, the shark's just tearing the whole boat apart. Everything's going crazy. So we're cutting between that and this chase through the maze. And I love the way they set that up of Danny and Wendy. Know the maze, like because they yeah. were you know they, they were spending time with each other because they like each other jack doesn 't particularly care for them, he doesn 't want to spend time with them, so they were in the maze that whole month, they know it inside and out, and they know, and he knows jack doesn 't i don 't think he was just running away to get away. he knows you know it 's really cold out. I can lure him in here, and we can get away and uh, again, talking about you know Kubrick uh, really knows how to design a set is the, the, apparently that was not real snow it 's an industrial salt and uh it was some kind of what was it formaldehyde or something to get this fog going that really does simulate it makes it look like it is you know minus 30 like i've been in minus 30 at night that that's what it, that's what it, it has a look to it and that's what it looks like um and yeah it's it, it's genius it makes you know it's like uh Obi-Wan talking about the sand people traveling in single file to hide their numbers that's what Danny Danny does sort of is covering his foot you know, his footprints and uh, and Jack is you know He's I don't think he's not thinking too much. If he really was thinking, he probably wouldn't have gone into a, you know, that maze in the first place. He probably should have just waited by the car. Um but he's, you know, he's in this total, you know, animal uh state screaming Danny, uh, talk you know, talking about Jack, you know, going over the top. He, he he totally evolves into this just he might as well be a werewolf or something. He's so uh Inhuman, and then eventually does just start, you know, <laughs> howling <laughs> yeah. at the moon, basically.
1: And, and years later would play a werewolf in a horrible movie. That's, um, right. That's right. wolf, so oddly enough, yeah. And no, it is, it is like he howls at the moon, and he's sort of having this guttural thing. And I, always, I look at this as if indeed the hotel has possessed him, this is the ghost sort of casting off that body that it doesn't need anymore. Because it's like, well... Yeah. Didn't get him this time, but we did kill that other guy that had the shining. So we'll call that a half win. <laughs> we'll pick it up again in ten years because we're still here and you're all gone. But I, I love the smash cut. To, we have this madness and then boom, frozen Jack, and it's just like wow. That's a
0: great cut. It's that's, that's pretty <laughs> yeah. scary too. It scared the hell out of me the first time
1: I saw it. Oh, yeah. oh, it's just a striking image because his eyes have rolled back in his head basically, yeah. and he's he's just he's got all this. It almost looks kind of like. Uh, ash and alien with all the white stuff, you know, after his head. Sure. Oh, it's yeah. very similar. And it's just this, just frozen to death, you know, and it's, and, you know, and, and it's foreshadowed early on. He tells the story of the Donner party freezing to death, of, you know, when they're on the ride up there and he freezes to death with that ax in his hands. And it's just, hmm. uh, and you know, the thing is, and the thing about this movie that that I like is that it doesn't give us any resolve. We see Danny and Wendy getting the snow cat, We assume it's got enough gas to get back to wherever civilization is, right? We don't know what happens to them. Well, obviously, Danny Torrance lives. I guess if you've read Dr. Sleep, you know how that goes. I'm curious to hear how, you know, that and see how that works out in in the movie uh, coming out this winter. But, uh, yeah, they go off and they're gone. And we go back to the hotel, which, by the way, is in pristine condition. There's nothing wrong with it. And we just zoom in on that one photo. You know, from 1921, and it's almost—I mean, again—it's almost like the hotel knows how to reset itself. And it's like, well, hmm. I guess when everybody comes back to work, we'll just uh, we'll try that again some other time. Yeah,
0: you I mean talking about—you know—Kubrick is great with the the mystery angle of his movies, uh, big time. With 2001 and this is no explanation, no—you no. know—they not don't, they don't set, really set that up earlier in the movie, aside from Jack being at that party in the ballroom, and you know everyone knows who he is. But it's just it is it's a weird note to end on, because you really could have feasibly just gone cut the credits on Jack's frozen body or whatever, saying, you know, the movie's over. But Kubrick wants to just give this bizarre question mark in, in everyone's head because it makes you think, was that photo already there or is the photo there now? It's like as because yeah. I, I read into that as like the hotel, like Jack's dead. He's, he's, he's fine. Like, you know, he's, he's dead, dead. So he is now a part of that hotel. The only thing missing in that image, if it were me, I would have put Halloran in that photo. I would have put Grady and Lloyd and the, the woman in the tub in that photo just to really that thing, just to really, you know, close the book on the hotel, you know, uh, claims you if you die there. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it's a hell of a thing to just end on, you know, end on that date because it makes you go, you know, because it's not necessarily well, a jump scare, but it just makes you go,
1: what the hell, what does that well, mean? It's one last unnerving piece. Cause again, you've got ironic music going. You've got this really sort of right. sweet love song in the background, you know, and this crooning and you, you're reminded of that line. Like a lesser filmmaker nowadays would echo that line in the background. Like, you're the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker that you right. heard 30 minutes earlier. But if you've watched this movie, that's in your head. And now you're like, Oh, 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 you know, and it leaves you again with. What's the answer? And, I mean, and Kubrick has cop to it that, uh, you know, the hotel recreates Jack. You know, it, it's recreated him hmm. several times and, or it recreates what it needs to get its sacrifice. Grady and Torrent seem to be, or Jack seem to be the, you know, the recreations over and over again. And I mean, think about it. We know nothing about Jack's family, where he's from. I mean, we know they're from Vermont. There's no mention of parents, anything like that. So he's just like, he just sort of appears, has a life uh, to get to a point. You know, Mm -hmm. and it's this point, and uh, you know it can't get uh, what it wants. So maybe it'll do it again. Maybe it won't. We don't know. You know, the book's a little more definitive Mm -hmm. how it ends. this leaves it more open ended, and I, I gotta say, like, look, the book's good. I'm not gonna dog it. It's it's one of King's better books. King always struggles with endings. I've I've said that forever, and I'll continue to say that. It's a little unsatisfying, but it's not a bad read. But this is a completely different experience, and I think it's much more interesting. Like like you said earlier, Kubrick said, you know, good is good, but interesting is better. And yeah. I think he chose the interesting way out with the ending.
0: Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, you, you put that idea in my head. I didn't even think about this idea that the hotel is, you know, quote, unquote, is alive and well when this is over. And the idea that it happened to Grady – it happened to Jack. It's probably going to happen to the next caretaker because, they, like they said, they can't keep the hotel open uh, 12 months out of the year. So the next caretaker is going to have to deal with this uh, again. Or or, or or will they? Again, it leaves you that, that question in your head. It's like, you know, what is the star child at the end of 2001? It's just something to right. you know, let your imagination run with.
1: Exactly. Well, you figured the next caretaker who has – any touch of the shining around him, either himself or through his family or something, they're going to have to deal with it again. Maybe the normal caretakers just have a boring winter. I don't know. But, uh, you yeah, know, because there seems to be some time in between. Because you figure, like, caretaker after caretaker died, like, the place would be like, just, we're done. You know, the reputation, yeah. even in 1980, we get out, like, we can't. Like, people would write about that. Like, no. Like, 10 years yeah. in between... And, you know, there's a scene earlier where Jack looks like got all these like newspapers on the desk or whatever. And it's 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 in the book where like he discovers all these stories about the overlook that they've kept for years. And he becomes obsessed with the overlook The Jack character does. And you kind of get the sense that that's what he's writing about. But it's never dropped in the movie and Kubrick doesn't really follow it. But just knowing that detail from the book, there's a scene where he's, when he's yelling at Wendy about interrupting his concentration, there's a big book with a bunch of old newspaper clippings in it. And I'm like, Oh, that's what that, you know, that's supposed to be, I guess, or whatever. But Mm -hmm. you you see that Jack is obsessed with the place. But either way, this open ended ending, it leaves you with all these questions. And again, makes you want to see it again. It's why the movie was a financial success. It wasn't a critical success. And then years later, people have come around on it. I think for the most part and, and given it a pass. But I think you're right to call it the most accessible film Kubrick has because it is one made for the broad audience. Uh, Maybe not since Spartacus did he make anything that was really meant for the, the movie going audience. And this one definitely hit that. Well, Kurt, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Stanley Kubrick's The Shining?
0: Well, I don't know what the final count would be because I, you know, I saw this movie a lot as a kid. So I, uh, you know, I can't really remember exactly what the number would be, but it's got to be at least fifteen times I've seen The Shining, and I, I just absolutely love this movie. If I had to make a top three horror film list, it would it would definitely be Jaws, An American Werewolf in London, and The Shining. The Shining is a rare A-list, big budget studio attempt at horror that really works. I mean, this is the guy who made Paz of Glory and Spartacus making a, a movie about a guy with an axe in a hotel, and it's one of his best films. It, it's Kubrick trying to make something a little bit more commercial, you know, best-selling novel and something, and he still manages to make something with groundbreaking visuals that you've never seen. Like, we didn't mention the use of the cam in this movie. This, the technology only recently invented, so the inventor of the cam, Garrett Morris, i think, Garrett Morris? I can't remember, but he is carrying the cam for those shots of uh, throughout the hotel, and, uh, you know, just creates an image, a style of horror uh, or just of kinetic uh, film that you just hadn't, hadn't seen before, you know, up to that point. Um, a haunted house movie with essentially four characters, six if you, you know, count those ghosts, Like we didn't even touch on Lloyd, one of my favorite characters, the best damn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine, or Portland, Oregon for that matter, and, well, it's this tiny amount of characters, and yet it feels like an epic with the cinematography on display here, not to mention the art direction, these massive, you know, areas of the hotel. Like, it really is a horror movie by the crew that did Barry Lyndon. Such a great use of color in this movie, all these reds and oranges and burgundies that goes great with, you know, the blood in the movie. Now, Jack Nicholson giving one of his most entertaining performances, and that's really saying something. Here is Jack Torrance going so beyond the point of over-the-top that, as Spielberg said, he didn't care for the movie originally, he said, Nicholson's almost more of a kabuki performance than a movie performance. But the point, the main thing is, he's is just a joy to watch in every shot. As camp as Nicholson might be, uh, Kubrick is not, so to speak. He makes this one of the most intense and frightening movies I've ever seen, still making me want to look away from the screen. Managing to be... Several kinds of horror in one movie: you have the supernatural element of the haunted hotel, which is scary enough, and then there's just that basic primal idea of your father coming at you and your mom with an axe, which is just in and of itself way more scary than you know uh, any kind of ghost. And that same level of detail and intricacy that Kubrick put into his previous films, like 2001 and uh, Clockwork Orange, is all over. The Shining, and it really is one of his best. It depends on the day with me, really. If I just watched Dr. Strangelove, I'd say that's my favorite. And after watching The Shining, I feel the same way, which is that, uh, again, it depends on when you ask me, but I often say The Shining is my favorite Stanley Kubrick film. And it's one of my all-time favorite films, and it's extra-large popcorn all the way.
1: Yeah, Kurt, I think you've summed it up. Excellent there. I'll only add a little bit more to this going that... This is not my favorite Kubrick film, but it's the one I've seen the most. And when we get to the end of this, we've got two more to go. We'll do a final definitive ranking of of all of them that we've reviewed here and, and run them down. But this one's definitely in the top three. It's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It's... Probably my favorite Haunted House movie of all time. I mean, I have a real soft spot for a House on Haunted Hill, the Vincent Price one, not the cheesy <laughs> remake. Um, though that is kind of guilty pleasure fun, but the, the Vincent Price one's awesome. But this kind of movie, they just don't... I mean, now they get made a lot. Like, The Conjuring has kind of brought this back, you know. So thank you, James Wan yeah. and Blumhouse, for bringing this <laughs> back. Um, but, like, Amityville Horror, the original one, and this one... You know, they didn't make these movies like this for years, decades, you know, because nobody wanted to try to redo this, you know. And all of those movies nowadays, Annabelle and all that you know, stuff, which I like a lot of those, um, borrow a lot from this and Amityville, and particularly this one. You know, this one's infinitely better than the Amityville horror. Amityville horror kind of lives in sort of its own little pocket and because there's an actual story to go along with it and if you know anything about it you kind of feel scummy for believing any of it it's 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 hard to access that one this one is complete fiction and it still totally works and it works because it doesn't answer its own questions even though they're i mean Kubrick definitely had a vision and this is what i think it is but what do you think it is and he was cool to let people sort of run with that and uh it's what makes this movie so much fun. And that, like I said earlier, this is one, after I watch it, I want to have a conversation with somebody about it. So I'm so glad I got to talk with you about this. Because even though it is the third time I've reviewed this on a podcast, I, I've seen a lot of different stuff. I've had a different take on it. And I'll be honest with you, I gave it a large popcorn way back when. And I, I think that was a fair rating then for what I was watching and reviewing it. But as a Kubrick film, this is extra large on <laughs> the way. I mean, it's absolutely fabulous. It doesn't entirely work as a horror film for some reasons. And I think the Windy character is a big sticking point for me. Like I just, I really don't like the performance there, Hmm. even though there's some, I found some better things in it and you've opened me up to it a little bit more. I still bump into that a little bit. So it's not perfect, but it's still, it's just as a film uh, experience, just watching this unfold and how this is done in these big, wide open rooms. And you nailed it, Kurt. Kurt, the thing about haunted house movies and scary movies is it's all about confinement, right? Well, this one's all about the openness of it. So it borrowed the open ocean part of Jaws and just made it, you know, even you know, more scary. And I love the idea of isolation as a terror of point. And I think Kubrick's had his powers here. And you know, not to tip my hand completely, I don't think he ever got better than this again. I think this was another dip, you know, back up to the mountain peak and then the next two entries didn't quite work as well. And I think he chased this movie and trying to make it great for the rest of his life. I and mean, the joke was, he was always cutting on it or whatever till the day he died. And it's probably true. You know, I mean, he, he obsessed over this movie because I think he realized how good he could make it. And he took a good book and he made a great film out of it. And one that lasts the test of time. And so this is extra large popcorn and definitely one of the best things, um, Kubrick ever did. And we're, you know, we're rounding the home corner here, Kurt. We got two movies mm-hmm. left to go in the Kubrick retrospective. We've got full metal jacket and ice wide shot. Those will both be 2020 uh, features. And then we'll have to find something interesting to do again for a, another ongoing series. Cause this one's gone on for several years, man. And it's been fun to do. But yeah. We're, we're not done with you for December yet though, man, because it's Star Wars time. We're going to wrap up, uh, for at least Absolutely. for the time being. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the Star Wars main, you know, uh, third trilogy here, right? We're going to get episode nine in just a couple of weeks.
0: The idea is, you know, I mean, an ongoing thing with Star Wars, but I think in, with with the last two Star Wars movies, I think they're going to pump the brakes a little bit. So this, uh, this is going to be a little different than Last Jedi, where it looks like, you know, we're going to have a Star Wars movie every year. You know, episode nine here, I think, is going to be a little, uh, hopefully it's going to be a little bit more special, because I think they are going to wait for a little bit and figure out what they want to do with Star Wars again. But, yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to that.
1: Oh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to, to jump back home Nick and talk some Star Wars and end up what has been a fun 2019 to return here to Filmstrip. And folks, we can't thank you enough for your support. Kurt, tell folks how they can follow you on social media. Well, you can
0: find me on Facebook. I have the Facebook group, the Fabish Factor Film Group on Facebook, where we get into discussions very much like the ones we just had here on this podcast. You can find the Fabish Factor Film Podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, one of these days, I'll get back to pumping out some more uh, episodes of that. And you can find uh, my film reviews on Letterboxd. At the moment, I'm being challenged to watch a certain type of film, uh, new films I hadn't seen before every month. The various styles this year, uh, at the point of this recording, were foreign films, films made before 1959, uh, films dealing with LGBT themes, films directed by women. And at the time of this recording, I'm going to be watching some uh, grind- 60s and 70s Grindhouse films I hadn't seen before. But you can find those uh, reviews on uh, Letterbox.com.
1: Very cool. Folks, you can follow me on Twitter at J Skipworth. You can also find more episodes like this one in the archives through the podcast or feed of your choice. Go to our website, FilmStrippodcast.com. You'll see everywhere that the podcast is available. And if you like the show, please leave a positive review wherever you listen to it. It helps other people find the show. Follow the show on Twitter at Pod. Or search Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook. You can follow the episode post there and interact with many of the hosts. We certainly appreciate your support. So until next time, for Kurt, I'm Jay. You've always been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you
0: for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section
1: 504C2, Title 17.